Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Thomas from the Double Edge Devil Bill podcast. This is going to be another bonus episode that we're uh, putting out in the interim while we start uh, developing the new show uh, that'll be coming out soon. And uh, this bonus episode is one in which Adam and I count down our top ten favorite film directors, uh, the the ones we consider the top ten best sort of film directors out there. Uh, and so uh, this that's what this particular bonus podcast is, which was recorded back in December of 2022, so fairly recent in terms of the Patreon. A lot of fun to record in this particular one. But before I get into that, I just want to do some shout-outs for uh, the new show I mentioned. Um, we'll be going up in July, just as an announcement here. Uh, we're going to be releasing uh, the first episode uh, we plan on July 11th for that. Uh, a big thing um, as of recent uh, over on our Patreon, patreon.com slash dedbpod. This week, while this bonus episode's going up, there are two things of note on that on the Patreon for those who just pay the $1 a month to get access to any Patreon content. Um, you would be able to f- first uh, hear a recently recorded bonus episode in which myself and the new co-host for the new show, Brian, have recorded a sort of on-the-edge-of-relevance-style blurb about uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. So we go into initially non-spoilery thoughts and then spoilery thoughts on that. And also, even before that, the first uh, you know chunk of it is actually a bunch of new information about the upcoming show. Um, we include, we reveal the title of the show. And much more crucially, um, on the Patreon this week, you'll be able to vote in a poll, uh, if you're a patron, uh, where one of the things I'll reveal here about the new show is that um, every miniseries we're going to be putting out will have a classic movie of a certain type uh, that'll be covered for whatever the topic of the miniseries is. In this case, the new next the first miniseries we'll be doing for the new show is about blockbusters, and uh, you all get to vote for the classic, which would be like pre-1980 movie uh, that fits the blockbuster genre. And uh, you all get to vote between two choices, which are Jaws and Star Wars, A New Hope, the 1977 first Star Wars film. So if you're a patron for that $1, you get to vote on which of those two will be the classic slot for our upcoming blockbuster series. So if you contribute that $1, you'll be able to listen to that bonus podcast and vote in that poll, which both those, like I said, are coming out this particular week. Uh, So you'll be able to do that and have access to all the other bonus content that we've had previously and in the future as we move forward with the upcoming new show. But now, without further ado, here is that top 10 list. I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. Mariani. Uh, AD, can I get some Vaseline for this lens? Like, a lot of Vaseline? Welcome to this month's bonus podcast here for December 2022. Uh, we decided, you know, to wrap up the year in our rotation, Adam and I, where we tend to like go through with the monthly bonus podcast, like, oh, here's a commentary, here's this, here's that. 
we're wrapping up on a top 10 list. And uh, for this top 10 list, Adam, we are doing something extremely daunting. <laughs> then in retrospect, it was like, oh, God, why are we doing this to ourselves? Yeah, yeah it was rough, man. This was a rough one. Uh, I mean, they've, you know, to be honest, though, most of the top 10s have been really hard. This one was difficult, too, just because there's so many that I want to put on the list. But And I also didn't want to do, like, the pure obvious ones. That, but it just, yeah, this one was hard. Yes, uh, in case you haven't read on your podcast or whatever what this top 10 list is about, uh, Edgelord patrons, uh, we are t- doing our top 10 favorite film directors. And we talked about this briefly in terms of the setup of just like, okay, what are what are our criteria, Adam? What, what is your criteria, I guess, for at least the ones you include on the list? Like, is it, oh, how many of great movies they did versus not great movies? Or how many of your favorite movies are on there? Or what did you really go into with this list in terms of your choices? I, I more or less went with, you know, some of my favorite movies, but also with the caveat that it couldn't just be like, one movie in their whole filmography. They had, they had to have a pretty steady filmography as well. Because, I mean, there's certain, you know, films that I absolutely love that are just, you know, sort of one-offs that I wouldn't put the director on the list. But for the most part, it's a combination of favorite and also overall quality. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with you in terms of, like, say, for example, you know, I love Muppets and stuff, and Little Shop of Horrors is my favorite movie of all time. I didn't put Frank Oz on my list I think he's a pretty right. consistent director, but I wouldn't put him as like one of my favorites of all time. No, yeah, absolutely. Like, I completely agree. I liked some John Landis movies. Not gonna happen. I mean, there's also that factor, yeah, of just like certain directors where it's like either they did make some of my favorite movies and they're either like pieces of shit in the case of John Landis who did horrible things or people who like kind of fell off like how many Tim Burton movies I love, but like... Oh, okay, I could, yeah, no way. Couldn't do it. After a certain point, no, I can't put it in the... Cannot, no. Um, but I think also what was interesting was, like, the a lot of my research for this kind of went by um, my Letterboxd list. If any of you follow me and not the Who's Tommy on Letterboxd, you know I make an absurd amount of fucking lists. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. I, a lot of them are, like, director filmographies, and I was, like, looking back at some of them, and there were certain ones where, like, it kind of snuck up on me. Where I was like, oh, wait, yeah, this person has a bunch of, like, really big movies that, like, I love. And I just didn't really realize they were one of my favorites until kind of putting this list together. Because it is also a combination of, I agree, like, some of them, I wanted to make sure there weren't obvious choices. I wanted to put some diversity on the list in general. Some shout-outs to people who I think deserve a lot more credit. But there were genuinely a few where just, like, it kind of snuck up on me how much I genuinely just love their entire filmography. Uh, yeah, me too. I mean, not so much in my main list, but definitely in my honorable mentions. There's quite a few of those. Um, and uh, basically, everybody, uh, as per our usual Patreon top tens, uh, we will be going back and forth from each other's lists. So someone will say like this their first choice, and then the other person will say their first choice, and keep going down. But the thing is, the first nine entries are just kind of in like a random order. There's not quite a specific like ten to two kind of thing, but. Number one, the last one we'll mention, each of us, is our absolute favorites, which I think we we disclose at least that much. It's like, don't steal my number one, motherfucker. It's this person. Yeah, don't for the do most it. part. Right. But in terms of the other people, I, I'm not really sure about your list. I'm very curious. No, there are definitely some that I was like, oh, he's going to put that. So I didn't. I think vice versa. But uh, yeah, I'm very curious. 
Right, and uh, each of us will also be specifically shouting out at least like one favorite movie from that director, as well as at least one underrated one, though, in talking about them, because we'll also elaborate a bit on like why we chose them in overall. Like we'll definitely be mentioning several films in their filmography, I'm sure, as we describe what we really like about them. And of course, also, as we kind of hinted at, these lists aren't definitive by any means. We could go multiple different ways with these lists. Like, you could ask me this same question a year from now, and I could give you ten different directors, probably. Or at least maybe, like, eight or so different directors. You could have asked me a week ago. <laughs> and if you would have got at least half of this list, it would be different. Right, because we, we were talking, like, after a podcast record, and you mentioned just, like, I'm still at, like, 35, Thomas. I need to whittle down. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah, But you did. You did some. I did it. I did it. Um, and you know what, Adam? Uh, usually with these lists, we end up kind of starting with you as the first entry. I'm going to steal it this time. I'm going to start off this list with... Uh, oh, yeah, sure. Uh, ego. Uh, <laughs> so much ego on me. Uh, but I'm going to go ahead and start with uh, one that I guess um, might be a bit more obvious. Uh, but at the same time, it's one that like... He, this is a director where he was definitely amongst like when I was starting to get into film. He was somebody who was like coming up at that time, and I realized like, oh, I, I love this guy's work. Uh, I am uh, going with my first choice here of Mr. Wes Anderson, who of course uh, does mainly like a lot of uh, like comedy stuff, and is definitely known for sort of his very meticulous style, the sort of hipster fashion of sorts, is a. Uh, kids would like to say at the time he was coming up. But I think what I love about Wes Anderson is despite the fact that his style, you know, there's a lot of familiarity in that style. At the same time, there's so much, like, progression. I love, like, from Bottle Rocket all the way through, like, the rest of his filmography until his, like, most recent movie uh, with um, the, the French Dispatch. You can see so much growth, I think, in him as a director where it's not just about the meticulous style, it's also about, like, what these characters are doing within there. You feel like, oh, okay, I'm, like, looking at this meticulously designed, like, almost dollhouse environment, but what about the dolls themselves? And I think with each progressive movie, you get so much more, like, introspection and fascinating aspects of, like, what, like, his various characters go through. Some people might accuse of being rich white people, like, problems to a certain degree. I think some of them are more guilty of that than others. I don't think every one of his films is amazing. But at the same time, the ones that really work for me are just so beautifully done, and especially with, like, the, not just the production design, but the great performances he gets out of people, the really wonderful, small, subtle moments of just, like, introspection that people go through that is just usually conveyed by, like, really steady close-ups on people and stuff like that. I think he's a phenomenal director, and I would say my favorite of his is uh, The Grand Budapest Hotel which was his film from 2014 that I just think has so many fascinating layers to it about like how we sort of tell stories about our lives and how those stories like quickly go from like something fanciful in a Wes Anderson way to something a bit more bleak and a bit more that gives you like that ennui and tragedy that you kind of realize is like a life kind of goes along. And at the same time, there's lots of fun. There's spirit in this refined as like maybe his best performance in most recent years in particular. He's so phenomenal in that movie. And then I would say for an underrated one, um, I kind of mentioned earlier his most recent film, The French Dispatch, which just kind of like came and went when uh, it came out uh, last year. And I think it's a very interesting sort of anthology movie that like really displays the idea, especially with that one, that's about like the French dispatch is like an American staffed paper in France. And you see so many elements of just like uh, an American person in France, like the very certain perspectives of France and all this other stuff that you get from all these various different things. Jeffrey Wright, who is tremendous in that movie, has one of my favorite sort of like monologues in the middle of the last segment in particular. That's stellar. Uh, but 
I would say, aside from maybe Isle of Dogs and the Darjeeling Limited, I really like to love all of his other movies. I mean, yeah, dude, I, I like Wes Anderson quite a bit too. I, I don't think I'm as big on him as you are, but you know, like I love the Royal Tenenbaums. I love Grand Budapest Hotel. I, I agree with you. It's easily Ray Fiennes' best work in a long time, uh, which is saying a lot because that dude's pretty fucking good. Uh, and I love Harvey Keitel in it, which is so fucking ridiculous. But um, yeah, you know, I haven't seen French Dispatch yet. It's definitely been one on my like to watch list. It's just for some reason I have gotten around to it. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm pretty much a fan of most of his stuff too. I, even Isle of Dogs is not my favorite, but I still like it. The same with Darjeeling Limited. I I still like it. It's not as high up on the list as like you know Grand Budapest or Ten of Bombs or things like that. But I, I've been a fan of his since Bottle Rocket. Obviously, I, I remember when that came out, and it was like the new movie from the new Wunderkind. And I saw it and I was like, oh, this is actually really fun and weird. Like, this is a weird movie, but I really liked it. I've sort of followed him ever since. I, I mean, honestly, I think French Dispatch is the only one of his I haven't seen. I, I just really, really enjoy Wes Anderson. I love the his use of symmetry in films and colors and things like that. I mean, it's it's really good. That's the one thing I could say about Wes Anderson and probably about a lot of our directors will mention. Uh, there's no question it's a Wes Anderson movie when you watch it. Like, it's absolutely a Wes Anderson movie, nobody else. And, uh, you know, having a defining style that is still accepted and people still want to see, it, as long as he's been in the game, is, you know, not anything to turn your nose up at. Yeah, and also that he's able to keep that kind of style when he even transitioned from doing live-action stuff to animated stuff, like I Love Dogs right. or Fantastic Mr. Fox, which we covered on the oh. show. Oh, cuss. <laughs> You're cussing right I'm talking about that movie. <laughs> um, but uh, you know what, Adam? Uh, let's go ahead and go with your first choice on your list. All right. So I really wanted to put like a working man director, you know, just a really reliable guy that you know, everything I've seen for the most part of his has been great. Even one of his movies is one of my favorite movies. It's probably my top 10. So I have Peter Weir. I just think he's a really reliable journeyman director. He's done a lot of really cool, weird things. I mean, you know, from the last wave to probably, I would say most people think his most famous would be Truman Show. But he's done just really good stuff. He's It's really consistent work. Like I said, I, I've always appreciated sort of the directors who can go in and get the job done. Like I'd say probably the most famous one we got working right now, I would put like a Matt Reeves in that style. I mean, he might have more of a definable style now, but he was just like a really competent, capable director. And I think that's what Peter Weir is. Uh, and for his movies, I mean, We've talked about it on the show. I still love it. It's still great. It's probably the, my favorite sort of ship movie, if you want to call it that. But I have Master and Commander uh, with Russell Crowe. It is one of my favorite movies from the way it's shot to the music to the acting to the story. I just think it's damn near a perfect film. And then for the one that, you know, it's uh, I a lot of people have seen it, but I just recently rewatched it. And it still holds up as like this really cool little self-contained thriller i have uh witness with harrison ford probably the first time i've ever seen danny glover in a movie and he was terrifying in it but it's just one of those i saw as a kid that always stuck with me and i, I like i said i went back and rewatched it not that long ago and uh, i was still very thoroughly entertained with it and uh it's one that if people haven't seen it and they want to see like a young harrison ford movie i would recommend that or even um a very underrated war movie um gallipoli with Mel Gibson. It's a very underrated movie. I mean, Mel Gibson fucking sucks a butt, but it's still a really sharp little war movie. And uh, I think you have to have talent and an eye in order to carry off these little things that 
really do have lasting power. I mean, everybody knows quite a few of his movies, but you might not know the guy who did them. Um, yeah, I have only seen three Peter Weir films. I've only seen Master and Commander, which we did on the show, Truman Show, and Dead Poet Society. Um, but at the same time, with those three movies, you can already tell, like, I would never be able to tell you that the exact same person directed those three movies. Like, because like, it's like the opposite of, like, the Wes Anderson angle, where you're kind of, like, surprised in a good way by, like, oh, wow, that guy has, like, such a diverse range in terms of the stories he can cover between, like, just those three. But then I, I've always wanted to see Witness. I just haven't yet. Um, and I know there's a, there's a couple other interesting ones. Uh, but, but yeah, I think that's an int- a really great choice. And I think especially just for, like, that the celebration of the journeyman thing that you're referring to, where you might not be able to say, like, oh, that's the distinctive Peter Weir style. At the same time, you can see, like, recurring themes. Like, in just those three movies I'm mentioning, they're all, like, sort of these movies that are about, like, people in these, like, bigger sort of institutions, whether it be, like, you're in, like, a weird reality show that you've been living in this whole time, you're on a ship, or you're, in the case of even Dead Poets Society, you're within, like, the sort of the boarding school. I think, like, all three of those managed to, like, have a similar thing of, like, really introspective, fascinating, like, character studies within massive big systems that these characters are kind of struggling against to some degree. And, uh, yeah, I, I definitely, if nothing else has made me support, like, I want to see more of his films for sure. Well, that's hot shit right there. <laughs> well, I'll continue, uh, with my list here. Um, and my next choice is technically two directors, but I kind of brought this up to you and they'll fit as one sort of pairing here. I have, um, Lily and Lana Wachowski, the Wachowskis. Uh, who, these were definitely filmmakers when, like, if you had asked me, like, I don't know, like a decade ago or so, I wouldn't have said they were one of my favorite filmmakers. But I think especially after The Matrix Resurrections and sort of the the tragedy of that incredibly interesting, vibrant, cool blockbuster movie failing and a lot of people dunking on it, I think it kind of rewired and made me realize that, like, even at their least sort of successful, I find the Wachowskis so fascinating for the big interesting leaps they're able to take and not just technology but also like how they can examine like what it is to be a person in the middle of like a sci-fi concept like in the matrix which i would say is my favorite movie of theirs obviously it's it, they managed to make like a very mainstream construct of that idea that i think they try and do in a lot of their movies of just like oh hey i'm a person that exists within in this, that case like a simulated world that I'm in, and I have to kind of try and, like, figure my way around it, and I think those themes are becoming more and more interesting as, you know, the Wachowskis um, transitioned, um, given their trans filmmakers, and you can see, like, how much of that, like, really speaks within their films, to a certain degree, I mean, keep in mind, I'm a cis uh, male guy talking about this, but at the same time, I think that helps kind of give you an interesting um, look at the fact that these these two managed to really do such a great job of, like, after a certain point when they started especially becoming truer to who they were as people, they kind of realized, like, oh, let's throw caution to the wind and do weird shit. And that they were always kind of doing, but even expounding further on it with, like, you know, the weirder movies that got them kind of thrown in director jail to a certain degree. Like, as many problems as there are with Cloud Atlas, I love the ambition and weirdness of that movie. Or even, like, A Jupiter Ascending I have various problems with, but it's very much, it's got its heart and sleeve in a way that few blockbuster films manage to do. And I think that's even the case like with as far back as The Matrix that's a like big sweeping romantic sci-fi action movie at the same time that's like really badass they wear their emotions very clearly and I think it makes it really endearing when especially you get to I think the underrated movie that I want to talk about is Speed Racer which on paper is just like oh you could do just like a standard kind of like live action cartoon that like many people have tried to do but that movie is so earnest and so joyful and it's a movie that I've grown to love 
so much over the course of like since it came out and then to like in recent years where i'm like oh my god this movie's great i was went from being like i don't know i have mixed feelings on this to like i love it and i think that's a that's a big thing with their filmography in general is i've grown to appreciate their work more and more as time has gone on in a way that like i said it's i've appreciate them more and more especially as like the modern blockbuster landscape has become some homogenized like after i said matrix resurrections like and like that failed so much and we're in the limo but like if either of them will continue to do like movies to any degree it really made me realize like i i didn't know what i had until it was gone for me i know this might be a bit of a disagreement between the two of us i mean I appreciate the Wachowskis. I appreciate their style and the fact that they are just who they are and they've never shied away from certain topics or certain underlying themes in films and things like that. Like, I mean, even think about like Bound. How the fuck did Bound even get made? And it's just, it's Bound is probably one of my favorite ones they've done. Uh, you know, The Matrix, absolutely. I, I mean, Matrix is a five out of five home run hit, no matter what when it, you watch it. I mean, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, it's still going to be great. Speed Racer, that, well, you know, we know how we, we've watched that together and it's it's fine. It's fine. There's a lot of fun in Speed Racer. It's better than I expected. I'll, I'll give you that. Uh, would the Wachowskis be in my top? No, probably not even my honorable mentions, uh, just because I think they have done more stinkers than good. That being said, even if they did nothing but stinkers, they still gave us the Matrix. So for that, they, you know, I, I get it. I get it. The Matrix is a masterpiece. Well, Adam, who's the next masterpiece filmmaker on your list? Oh, I have a filmmaker who has only 20 credits to his name, which is pretty wild when you think about it, just how revered he's become now in this ripe old age and how much work he's still pumping out but i first saw a movie with this i mean i was a young young boy when i saw uh my first movie by this director and it sort of blew my mind and i've been a fan ever since and i've gone back and you know seen everything i can that he's done and will continue to watch everything he's does and uh, i have george miller george miller to me is one of the still at his age, one of the most exciting directors working today. Just the shit that he's able to put on screen or even just get made, which is fucking crazy. You know, and the two movies I'm going to highlight are his last two films that he's done. Obviously, Fury Road, no big shocker. Uh, it's probably my favorite of his. If not, I mean, I mean, I could interchange it with The Road Warrior or even Beyond Thunderdome or maybe even Witches of Eastwick or, you know, just nonstop there's so many, but I'll just say Fury Road uh, because it's probably the most accessible for anybody if they're curious to see the movies we're talking about. Plus, it is a fucking masterpiece. It's one of the greatest reboot slash sequels ever made. The kinetic energy, the colors, the sound design, the character design. It's just so fucking George Miller. Like, nobody else could do it. You've seen, I don't know how many other post-apocalyptic films. None of them are the Mad Max films. None of them are Fury Road. It's its, its own unique thing that cannot be duplicated. Uh, I mean, people might have tried, but it, it never works. And then 3,000 Years Longing. Like, how the fuck did he get that made? And obviously he didn't do great, but man, what a just beautiful, like, even if you just go by visually, it's gorgeous. If you go by the idea behind it, where it's a genie telling his story and how he came to f be with the person he, who's got him now, Great story, great idea, and it's and plus just Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba. I mean, 
Tilda Swinton alone makes me want to see a movie. It's, that woman, good God. I mean, she can go from making you laugh to creeping you out to just breaking your heart. And she almost does all three in this movie. And it's just, it's a spectacular performance. And by Idris Elba, it's a spectacular performance. And ultimately, the just what ha- the way the movie wraps up, I mean, I was sobbing and I was like, I'm so glad I've seen this. And anybody that I've recommended to who has actually watched it came away loving it. And only a guy like George Miller could get that made and and have a studio be like, hey, you gave us Fury Road. Here you go. What do you want to do next? I want to do a genie movie. All right. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just, it's fucking wild. But that's why I love George Miller. He's He's got this sort of maverick renegade sort of air about him where he's going to make what he wants to make when he wants to make it. I mean, just the fact that Fury Road is in 2015 and its predecessor was, you know, in 85. 30 years later then he's like yeah i'll make another one and now he's doing a prequel and possibly another one it's just it's so fucking wild to me but man do i love me some george miller uh yeah i mean this is definitely one that you kind of hinted to me off mic that you were going to definitely put on the list so i did not put uh miller on my list though i think he is great i think you mentioned like 20 credits a lot of those are like smaller short films in terms of like feature films that have been released that he's directed it's only been like 11 and even the amount of variety as well in that particular filmography is, like, mind-blowing. Where you mentioned, like, four of them are the Mad Max movies, and then you 3,000 Years of Longing. But even before that, you have, like, The Witches of Eastwick, Lorenzo's Oil, the two Happy Feet movies, Babe, Pig in the City, and even the original Babe, which he's created as, like, a writer-producer. Some would argue he maybe had more influence over the direction than Chris Noonan, who's the credited director. Uh, but regardless, I think that guy has such a fascinating bizarre like back and forth to where like he's only made like that small amount of movies but at the same time like each of them feel like so distinct you can kind of see that kind of mad fascination that's really like the recurring thing is sort of like he knows how to capture sort of the anxieties and the the madness that kind of like develops from any of these different situations and i think that's even the case with my least favorite of his is probably happy feet that is a weird kids movie that is such a bizarre weird kids movie that i'm so baffled made so much money enough to make happy feet 2 which is even weirder i think that's the thing is that you can never really quite predict the next move for a miller even like with furiosa i'm sure it's going to be even more like off kilter and bizarre than like Fury Road, because even, like, with the Mad Max movies, they all feel, like, so distinctly different, where you have, like, Mad Max is, like, on the precipice of, um, you know, the apocalypse with the original 1979 movie, then much more apocalyptic with Mad Max 2, very, like, in the distant past with Mad Max uh, Beyond Thunderdome, and then Fury Road feels like it's in this weird netherworld in between, that at the same time you don't really need the exact chronology, because it's all about, sort of, the, the weird, bizarre lack of continuity with the Mad Max movies. But yeah, I, I think Miller's a, a true sort of mad visionary and that I'm so happy still is like able to make movies in general in the middle of the studio system. And yeah, I'm very excited for Furiosa and whatever else he will do uh, for as long as he will keep directing movies after that, which I hope is a very long time. God, George Miller's Justice League. That would have been something. That would have been very interesting, though. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm glad at least one cast member didn't end up becoming uh, Batman, and we'll leave it at that. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, for my next one uh, in, on my list, I have this is another one that kind of snuck up on me uh, because technically they haven't made like a huge amount of theatrical releases, though. If you include uh, some of these sort of uh, TV 
slash the Amazon things that he, they've done. Uh, they have a pretty robust filmography in their own right. Uh, I have uh, Steve McQueen, who, of course, isn't the uh, old-school movie star of The Blob and Bullet, but um, the uh, British black director who, like, he was another one where I went to, like, my ranking list of his, and I'm like, oh, yeah, these are all, like, at least good, if not, like, eventually to great. He's, like, such a fascinating filmmaker, especially considering the, uh, the if you look at the theatrical films alone, where you go from, like, Hunger, which is, like, an Irish, like, uh, hunger protest movie starring Fassbender, to Shame about sex addiction, to 12 Years a Slave, which is obviously, like, this bigger sort of, like, Arguably Oscar Beatty drama, but I think that one's a lot more sort of like quiet and character focused in a way that makes it a bit above sort of like your average best picture winner. And then following it up with Widows. But then you also have the small act stuff that he's done, which if you don't know was um, a series of like five um, feature length movies that aired like on the BBC, but then uh, were uh, on, in the States were presented on Amazon. They're all about a West Indian immigrants and their experiences in Britain. Um, he has such a fascinating way of like in any of these different subjects whether they be genre focused or be a bit more like sort of based on a true story um you feel so much intimacy in any given scene like i remember when i started really becoming a fan of him was with shame which was if you don't know it's about michael fassbender who has a sex addiction and there's a point where it's a one shot of michael fassbender having sex with this woman and then the woman says i love you and that gets him flaccid and you just see in one shot how he just, like, dislodges and then goes over to, like, the window. It's just, like, he can't do it. He can't, like, have any intimate connection with somebody, despite how much he likes having sex. And it's such a, like, upsetting one take that gives you so much intimacy in the middle of, like, a potentially, like, oh, this is so, like, this is a raunchy, like, oh, he's having sex all the time. It's like, no, it's really sad. <laughs> it's really upsetting. And I think he does such a great job of that, even within, like, the context of my favorite movie of his, Widows, which on paper is just like, oh, it's like a heist movie and all that. And we talked about it on the show recently, like, with our Viola Davis episode. But that movie does such a great job of integrating you into, like, the politics of Chicago and the lives of the individual women who are pulling off this heist in a way that's, like, both very intimate and subtle and engrossing, but also it's a kick-ass heist action movie at the same time. So wonderful with that. And then the underrated one I want to mention, besides just small acts in general, which is those five, all five of those are very good. Um, but my favorite of those is one called Lover's Rock, which is about it's like a house party going on in London. And it's just about a bunch of these like uh, West Indian immigrants who are in London trying to just have a party. And it's like extremely intimate. There's so much of just like how the party evolves and goes along. And there are subtle indications of like the threats outside with like police that are just kind of like scanning around waiting to like sort of destroy this party. But it's like a really beautiful, intimate house party movie um, that isn't like as silly and over the top as like a house party. But it's like really beautiful and just shows like a bunch of people having a great night. And some people have a better night than others, but... You just get a sense of, like, the full scope of this one house party in London that is, like, so beautiful and engrossing and fun. The needle drops are amazing. There's a whole sequence where, like, the DJ starts dropping a particular song and, like, everyone's dancing at the exact same groove to it. Everyone, like, it's, it's such a beautiful display of, like, getting into the groove of, like, a group of people dancing at a party. It's tremendous. I think that whole series is phenomenal, but Lover's Rock is the best of those. You know, I, it's kind of ridiculous how many Steve McQueen things I haven't seen. 
to the point where uh, all of them, except Widows, <laughs> I think <laughs> I'm really not experienced with any of his work. I mean, you've recommended the uh, Amazon shorts uh, to me several times. I just haven't gotten the chance. But uh, uh, For the small acts, they are feature films, not shorts. I thought they were shorts. No, they are um, all at least like 60 or 70 minutes long. Oh, okay. Which is technically feature long. Yeah, that's true. Well, then fuck me. Uh, but uh, <laughs> It shows how inexperienced you are, Stephen. Yeah, 100%. But I do love Windows. So, uh, right. <laughs> enough, I mean, I never would have imagined he would have made your top 10. But uh, yeah, I should go back and uh, check out some of his stuff then, I guess. Yeah, do it. But <laughs> let's go on with your next entry on your list, Adam. Uh, my next entry on my list is uh, one of my favorite directors working today, uh, especially with sort of sci fi. Three of his big hits sci-fi I think you could argue for but uh i have denis villeneuve uh i think he's one of the most exciting sort of blockbuster filmmakers working today not all his movies have done phenomenal at the show some of them have some of them haven't always en- i've enjoyed everything i've seen that he's done be it prisoners or enemy or any of those enemy especially because of the fucking ending what the shit but um yeah i just i'm really excited for the future with this guy i mean i think he's got such a unique sort of artistic eye on how to frame things just really knows you know how to convey to a cinematographer where to put the camera and is really into concept design and things like that and i I just think you know he's just fucking brilliant when it comes to sort of genre fair and uh obviously i think it's no surprise what my favorite pick of his is going to be dune of course uh, I fucking love Dune. I, I've seen it I don't know how many times now. I could put it on right now and watch it from front to back. Um, I'm super excited for the next chapter, especially with the Bananas casting of Christopher Walken. That movie was so important to me, and it still is important to me. I absolutely love it. Everything about it worked for me. I mean, you, if you've heard us talk about it on Patreon before, you know, but uh, I absolutely just think it's a perfect film. Um, and then the other one that I'll, I'll mention that I don't know that it's underrated, but it's just not talked about, at least that I see. And I also think it's a five out of five. Um, I have uh, Sicario, uh, which is a very sort of not genre uh, movie about drugs passing from the border and the sort of the black ops that goes into trying to stop that from happening and how crooked it could be and, and things like that. And, and, and talk about, potentially the best performances uh several of the actors have ever given i mean i think it's emily blunt's best i definitely think it's benicio del toro's best i think bernthal's great in it in his little quick minute i think josh brolin absolutely lights the screen up i can never remember his name but i just call him burn notice uh he's really fun in it uh it's just it's sicario is just a really understated quiet movie until it doesn't need to be until there's action and just things happening but other than that it's just a sort of real sort of slow burn and then heights of action that slow burn heights of action and i just absolutely love sicario uh, jeffrey donovan is burn notice who you referred to yeah blair witch <laughs> too burn notice whatever. right book of shadows his own <laughs> jeffrey donovan for sure um but yeah i mean danny villeneuve is definitely um one of the more interesting sort of like bigger budget filmmakers working today i don't love all of his movies like even a dune uh i i like a lot of aspects i think it's the best possible version of a story that i think i have flaws with based on the earlier adaptations we've talked about it previously the three sci-fi movies he's done because there's dune there's blade runner 2049 which is my favorite of his works and also arrival 
which I think is like all three of those are very distinctly different sci-fi movies yeah i think even at his worst like i'm not a huge prisoners fan but there's great elements to that movie that i would say make it at least like fasting to watch alone and i'm curious i want to go back to like some of his earlier films that he did uh like they were like back when he was working in like french canada and like uh polytechnique and stuff like that i've heard great things about as well uh, he wouldn't be necessarily on my list but i think he's a totally worthy choice and one that i 100 percent get especially you putting on your list i'm not gonna forget what you just said about doom <laughs> no, I don't think you've forgotten it since we did our On the Edge of Relevance talking about it. It's been festering in your soul <laughs> since we talked about it there. For my next choice, um, I have definitely uh, another one that fits into sort of like the genre landscape, though he's not just specifically a genre filmmaker. Um, he's, you know, been working in the industry now for like over 40 years, and even as recently as earlier this year, he delivered a very fascinating movie, even within the constructs of like the modern film landscape i have mr sam raimi who i mean you know is starting like early low budget horror evolving into like a lot of interesting experimentation in the 90s with like the studio system what he could do with it and then eventually you know basically creating the superhero genre that we you know are stuck in the middle of today like really perfecting the idea of what that is and uh, or at least like crystallizing what audiences wanted out of it sort of three top tier ones were just like that would put him on my list alone would be like my favorite is evil dead 2 which obviously is like one of the most gonzo fascinating like bizarre horror comics that's ever been made tremendous movie that just has so much different ideas about experimenting within the construct of like let's kind of remake e the evil dead but do the weirdest stuff we could possibly do with a bigger budget and doing such a tremendous job of that with just the way he's able to use like his you know sock puppet of um bruce campbell to like make him like drag himself around literally by his own hand and stuff like that it's it's a tremendous work of art in its own right but like that spider-man 2 and a simple plan are three of like the best movies within varying wide different genres that still have peaks of like what sam raimi usually does even with like you know we talked about a simple plan with like that one is the least sort of raimi but at the same time has so much of like that sort of like midwestern earnestness that I think makes all of his work so interesting, because you, whenever you see him interviewed, he's just like, hey, buddy, hey, pal. That kind of, like, his persona alone also makes me so endeared to him when you see him in interviews and stuff like that. But um, as much as Evil Dead 2 is my absolute favorite, the underrated one, I would say, is The Quick and the Dead, which was a movie that, like, came out in the mid-'90s, uh, came and went, despite a very stacked cast, and a really cool twist on the western genre from like his perspective which just there's so many great like montages of people like shooting each other that are tremendous of an incredibly stacked cast of just people at varying weird points of their careers like you have like a gene hackman right off of unforgiven and then a baby face leonardo dicaprio like not too long after gilbert grape so many other people it's like one of my favorite westerns that especially like just has such a fun postmodern take on what like a western can be with like his camera angles and the reason like shootout sequences that happen it's such a tremendous thing where like i said even as recently as this year dr strange in the multiverse of madness i had so many issues with but none of them were the Ramiisms. that's a movie where you can tell it's sam Raimi just on the sidelines waiting for like yeah let's get through the, the sort of like marvel cookie cutter bullshit whatever are we done great let me do weird shit again and it was so great seeing after like a nine-year hiatus him back on the director's chair doing something weird like that and i hope it's not another nine years before he directs another movie again he was just recently announced he's going to make a remake of magic 
which I'm curious to see how the fuck that goes. Uh, but uh, at the same time, yeah, whatever his next project is, hopefully it's not like too far away because I just want to see whatever the hell he does. And he still has such spark and imagination left in him, despite being, like I said, in the industry for like 40 years at this point. Still delivering, you know, at least something with some kind of fun to it. I mean, yeah, dude, Sam Raimi's the shit. I mean, he's, I, I kind of figured he was going to be on yours because if not, probably would have been on mine. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I absolutely love Sam Raimi. Plus, hey, he's from Michigan. Ooh, that's where I'm from. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I absolutely love Sam Raimi. He's so unique. Uh, I mean, look how many filmmakers now have paid homage to his quick cuts and things and other other genre fare. I mean, Edgar Wright, for God's sakes, does it constantly, and people just love Sam Raimi and he, because he's you know a genuinely nice guy too. But he has you know an artistic vision and. As much as, you know, it might have been, like you said, sort of churned through the MCU factory with Doctor Strange, there is still a lot of Sam Raimi in that fucking movie. A lot. And uh, it comes through because he is that good. Uh, But yeah, I mean, Evil Dead 2 probably would be my favorite of his, too. I mean, I really have a soft spot for Army of Darkness. I grew up with it. But Evil Dead 2 is probably his best, if not a simple plan. And Quick and the Dead, yeah, I love Quick and the Dead. Quick and the Dead's one of those, anytime it's on, I'm watching it. Uh, Quick and the Dead, to me, only has one major problem, and that's its star I don't think really works. Uh, but Arnett, I think everything else about it works. I think it's super fun, it's dirty, it's gross. The supporting cast is just like a who's who of like character actors. Like, oh my god, that's him. Oh my god, it's him. Oh my god, it's him. And it's nonstop. And uh, yeah, I just Sam Raimi has such a much like we talked about with, you know, your Wes Anderson, where it's like you watch a Sam Raimi movie, it's Sam Raimi. Like a simple plan might be the, the biggest sort of one that deviates from that, but there's still enough in there uh, to where when you find out it's Raimi, you're not really surprised. Oh, uh, that or that fucking Kevin Costner baseball movie, uh, which is no good. Or, I mean, like Oz the Green Powerful is even worse, honestly. Oh, like, <laughs> oh that, I, I even, dude, I completely even forget that he did that what a terrible film as bad as oz great and the powerful is he's got five their masterpieces so or damn near it so yeah no sam raimi absolutely would have been on mine if not on yours so i'm glad he's got included and for the record i am a fan of sharon stone the quick and the dead i think she it's it's not at all it, it, it works in a lesser but similar fashion to like a man with no name for me it's a very kind of like tough person performance that i quite enjoy yeah i don't like it <laughs> Well, who do you like, Adam? Who's the next person on your list? Next person on my list got put on the list because he's made a lot of films with my favorite, like, sort of classic actor. Uh, But then he's got a lot of other ones that don't feature that actor that are quite good. Um, I have Michael Winner. Uh, Now, Michael Winner, you know, to to cue people in, he's made a lot of movies with Charles Bronson, who I absolutely love Charles Bronson, always have. Uh, ever since, I, I honestly want to say my first exposure to Charles Bronson was like The Simpsons or The Critic, and I didn't understand. I'm like, what is going on here? Like, there was a Death Wish, whatever, The Critic reviewed. He's like, I get a wish to die, <laughs> you know, because he's in the hospital bed. He's so old. Uh, but I've always loved Charles Bronson. He has such a unique look about him. And uh, I don't think anybody did much better work with him than Michael Winner. I know you're not necessarily a huge fan of uh, the original Death Wish, and I completely understand it is a dirty movie. Um, and I, I get why you you don't like it. I still do like it quite a bit. I even like the second, and we've talked about the third one on the show. I love the Hell third yeah. one. The third, the third one is 
batshit bananas crazy. Uh, that would be my honorable, like the one like people need to see it. It's fucking, it's so fun. It's crazy fun. Uh, but my my favorite movie he's done, uh, and it's a Bronson movie, is The Mechanic. Uh, I think The Mechanic might be Bronson's best. Um, and it's also might be Michael Winner's best. It's such a cool little assassin thriller movie uh, with a really great performance by Bronson, but a really great Jan Michael Vincent performance, which is kind of crazy. And it's just everything about it, it, it. I just absolutely love it. Obviously, they did the remakes with Statham, which were uh, two varying degrees of suckage, um, especially the second one. Good God. But um yeah, I just think he was one of those guys who he could do pretty much anything. He did comedy. He did Western. He did the Bronson movies. He did, you know, some genre fair with sort of like thriller horrors. He did the Sentinel, which I'm not crazy about the Sentinel, but I get why people like it. But he's done, you know, some really great stuff that uh, is another one of those directors, much like probably a Peter Weir, that people have seen stuff he's done or heard of stuff he's done, but they might not tie him to all of the other different things they've seen. But to me, he had a definitive style um, just watching his Bronson movies. And I just, I love him for that. I, I love the sort of seventies, late seventies, early eighties, sort of grimy New York vigilante movies. And I think this guy was one of the best at them. Um, yeah. I've only seen the first three death wishes in the Sentinel from Michael Winter. Um, I think there's, a lot of fascination with, like, even, like, with the original Death Wish, my problem has nothing to do with, like, the sort of, the, the dirtiness and the sleaziness of, like, the aesthetics of that movie. This was just some of, like, the sort of morals, ambiguity stuff that, like, the sequels afterward kind of uh, throw out the window, necessarily. Which I think, the even, like, Death Wish 2 and 3 have, like, such bizarre, like, the canon film aesthetic added to it that makes it, both those movies, like, bizarre and interesting. Um, I haven't really wanted to pursue Winner's movies, just quite frankly... He's one of, you know, we kind of mentioned this earlier, he's a person who's been accused of a lot of sort of, like, uh, temperament issues and even sexual harassment stuff from uh, actresses and stuff like that who were on his films. See, I was unaware of this, to be yeah. 100% honest. Uh, okay, so I'll change it for David O. Russell. He's fine, right? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's been apparently a lot of sort of um, accusations made about Debbie Arnold apparently said that he... Um, made her expose her breasts for an audition and stuff like that that she felt very uncomfortable with. And you can kind of see that in, like, the Death Wish movies, using sexual assault and rape as plot points for male characters of, like, these female characters. Um, so I just haven't been as inclined to watch some of the further movies uh, myself. But at the same time, you know, there's there's a fascination with particularly the Death Wishes uh, about how they kind of handle the vigilantism. I, I get why you would put him on the list at the same time, having especially not known some of those other elements about his character. Yep, like we said, come back to me in a week. The list will be different. Uh, well, my next person on the list um, is another one of those that snuck up on me, where I, I recently went through sort of their entire filmography. Um, even like I, I watched like the last of his filmography. I hadn't seen like only a couple months ago. But the more I thought about it, the more I find that like, he's he's definitely one of the ones where we kind of mentioned sort of the diversity with a lot of people on your list. This guy definitely, I think, fits that. Uh, I have Ong Lee. I, like, always liked Ong Lee's films, but until I, like, kind of was doing the research for this list, I realized, like, oh, yeah, how many varying movies that he's done where, like, there's a lot of, like, especially early on in his career, a lot of, like, intimate family dramas, especially um, in his, you know, original uh, Taiwanese stuff, like uh, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, 
and um, so, you know, like the pushing hands, the earlier stuff that has like a lot of that intimacy. But even when he transitioned into doing like American productions, he was able to do a beautiful job with that, like in sense and sensibility. Um, and you know, even Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon has a lot of like intimate family drama at the same time. It's a big action movie. And I think that's the thing is that like, he's another one of those directors where I think it's been a common thing with a lot of the directors I've talked about is that kind of like intimacy, even within genre that you're able that they're able to display. And I think he does such a beautiful job of that where. Like, even in his worst movies, like, where he's experimenting with big, massive, like, high frame rate technology, like Gemini Man or Billy Lynn's Halftime Walk, those are weird movies to put, like, the high frame rate technology and massive budgets into, especially Billy Lynn. Like, it's not a movie that I like necessarily, but that is such a bizarre, like, oh, this is what you're spending, like, the big, massive, like, new groundbreaking technology on. It's just, like, intimate war drama about somebody performing at like the Super Bowl? That's really weird and bizarre, and I wouldn't have expected that, but in even successful movies he's done where he like has been br- groundbreaking in terms of like visual effects and stuff, there's still that intimacy that's there, like in Life of Pi. The, the two I want to spotlight, my favorite of his, is Brokeback Mountain. I think that's such a beautiful story about like these, you know, two gay men having some kind of relationship in the way, especially that like they've been trained because of like sort of the environment that they're in to have no kind of expressed emotion to like really keep it bottled in. So when they're together and they do have a bit of intimacy to them, they are even still guarded, but there is still like a beauty between Jake Gyllenhaal and Heath Ledger, their performances, almost like they're bottled up and they can't really express their love only when they're just like in the most intimate possible situations. And it's especially how like tragic that ends up being, but in a way that doesn't feel like a lot of other gay love stories where it's just like, oh, there's the tragedy that this, because of society, they can't be together. It's like, it's even more about just like, not just the societal angle, but just these two people can't quite communicate with each other at the same time. There's so many layers to it in such a beautiful, tragic movie. And then the underrated one, I'm going for it. Like, it's a movie that I didn't like when it first came out because I was a kid and I was not expecting what this movie was because of, you know, I mentioned Sam Raimi, sort of like what I expected from superhero stuff. I think his Hulk is a much better movie than people would have given it credit for at the time. I think the movie is aged to be not like a great movie, but especially, I say it again, the sort of like Marvel MCU kind of like assembly line movies. Um, It is such a fascinating experimental take on what like the Hulk is as a character and what that sort of means, especially where it feels more like a universal monster movie than it ever does like a superhero movie in a way that I find fascinating and engrossing. And I just think, you know, whatever problems that the movie has, which there are many, I still find it, like, so much more engrossing and fascinating, and especially character-focused in a way few superhero movies have done since. All right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I like Ang Lee. I'm not necessarily a fan of all of his stuff, but I like Ang Lee as a visionary and as a director. I think he does a lot of interesting things, like you said, whether you like him or not. Like Gemini Man and Billy Lynn, like, uh, okay, that's a decision. Um, so you at least got to respect that. Uh, I am not a fan of Hulk. I think we've talked about this before. I still don't like it. Uh, there's parts about it I do like, for sure. I know a lot of people don't like sort of the comic book freeze frame stuff and all that, and I never was a fan of that either. But after I've watched it again and again, I, that becomes sort of my favorite stuff because, like, how? Why would you do this? It's such a baffling decision. But all right, cool. Because it's like stylish and fun in a way that modern <laughs> superhero right, movies exactly. Are. So I, I'm cool with. It. I, mean, I mean, I don't like the Hulk, but I'm not as mad as as I was when I first saw it when it came out. I think it's fine. And nothing else, it's a very interesting curio that will never, ever, ever, ever happen again. Ever. Never. No, never, never. 
There's a great story about the James Seamus, who was the screenwriter that worked with Angley on a bunch of movies, where he saw Spider-Man and everyone was like rousing and they were still in production on Hulk. And then he went over to the phone and was just like, they fucked us. They, this is not what they want from a superhero movie, like what we're doing. <laughs> and true, they did not want that. No, they did not want that. And you'll never see it again, at least from a major uh, superhero character. But yeah, I mean, Brokeback, I've seen it a couple times. I like Brokeback Mountain enough. Um, I think it's, I mean, like Heath Ledger is fucking dynamite. And he's, so is Gyllenhaal. Gyllenhaal's accent's a little rough. Uh, but, you know, that's just me being sort of ADHD and harping and hanging on little things that bother me i, I do think it it really rides the edge of making it sort of a gay tragedy film but it never really crosses into it too much like let's put it like this and i'm speaking for someone who is on an lgbtq you know i identify as that um if they if say one of them would have got aids then it would have pushed it into the okay like we're just going full-blown like it's a tragedy it almost gets to that point but it doesn't do it and i think that's what makes the movie work as well as it does because there is a lot of sort of gay tragedy tropes in that film but i just think that it's done so well that it never comes across exploitive which in the hands of a lesser director i think it would have but i think he handles it with like expert gloves if, if you want to put it that way i think it's done pretty well uh, my favorite from him is the OG, where uh, the first time I saw it, I'm like, what is this? Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, mm-hmm. I think is a masterpiece uh, still to this day. I mean, it's beautiful. Michelle Yeoh, Zhang Ziyi, Chow Yun-Fat. I mean, The Wire Fu, which I wasn't a fan of when it first came out. And now I'm like, oh, yeah, fucking go for it. And that's the best example still of it. Maybe Hero, but Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is a masterpiece. Yeah, there, there's even, like, what, what I like is the fact that with even, like, Brokeback, like, it's not necessarily that there's a tragedy, but even with throughout all of his movies, there's just, like, a general sadness that feels very human. Yeah, maybe that's why I don't watch his movies. <laughs> because they bum me the fuck out. They're very oh. upsetting, sad movies, mostly. <laughs> like, even Hulk is a super sad movie. <laughs> for the, Yeah, for the most part, until he fights giant dogs or Nick Nolte bites an electrical wire, and you're like, okay, this is crazy. <laughs> that's true that's true but i've talked enough about my, that one adam what about what who's your next person on your list uh my next person on my list is oh i mean probably ew, if he's not the top action director of the late 80s early 90s uh he's tied for top spot i have a guy who doesn't have a lot of credits but he had like four or five bangers right in a row john mctiernan I mean, John McTiernan, it's crazy when you look at his filmography, which is not big at all. I want to say it's only like, yeah, it's like 12 movies. He's got 12 credits. And uh, I mean, half of them are like masterpieces. You know, you got Predator, Die Hard, Hunt for Red October, Die Hard with a Vengeance. Uh, I like The 13th Warrior quite a bit. A lot of people like Last Action Hero quite a bit. So, I mean, there's a lot on there that have just huge name recognition. And I mean, it's just crazy that 12 credits. 12. Predator is tied for my number one movie of the 80s with another director who may or may not pop up on my list. Uh, Predator is a masterpiece. So obviously that's going to be the one I'm saying is my favorite. But Predator is an 80s action sci-fi horror macho machismo masterpiece. It, it just sweaty dudes with big muscles talking shit and stupid one-liners fighting this 
brilliantly designed creature in a sort of unique unique and distant setting. It's fucking great. It's fucking great. And the soundtrack and everything just works perfect. There's nothing about Predator I would change. Not one thing. And then one that, you know, originally I was going to put 13th Warrior as like, oh, underrated. And I do feel it's underrated, but I know people hate that fucking movie. But one that I do want to put that maybe people don't think about enough because of sort of the two sequels that followed it and maybe even the one before it but it still holds up as just a thrilling action movie is die hard with a vengeance uh i think die hard with a vengeance you know before part two was my next favorite but now after you and i have actually watched them all right three is like number is uh, set next after one one's still my favorite but three would be next and it's just it's super fun great buddy sort of buddy cop thing with him and samuel jackson jeremy irons is great as the simon gruber uh beautifully shot in new york you get really the sense of new york whether they're in the city or they're then they're on the roads or under the in the tunnels and the aqueduct it's just it's a thrilling fucking action movie it's really well done and like i said it's just crazy to me that 12 movies and this guy did you know Predator, Die Hard, Die Hard, the, the Hunt for Red October, which is also fucking great. Uh, it, but, I mean, he did do Medicine Man. So, <laughs> John McTiernan is one of those guys where it was like, he was gold for a minute. Um, yeah, I think McTiernan is like, I've, I've kind of talked about this with some of the other people on my list about just like sort of, along with like the general filmographies, I also really like the sort of career trajectory of certain filmmakers, especially McTiernan is one of the most fascinating. Because it's like you mentioned, aside from like Nomads was his first movie, which is like apparently a horror movie with Pierce Brosnan, but no one's like really seen. I've seen it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is that a, a top tier McTiernan? <laughs> is that tiered McTiernan? My favorite part of Nomads is that Adam Ant plays it like a big supporting role. Yeah, I've heard that, yes. <laughs> that, <it's, laughs> which yeah. is weird it's already. But, wild. But but anyway, yeah, like the, the sort of the that career thing of like Predator, Die Hard, Hunt for Red October, like those three movies alone would be like, oh, this guy's like made, there's nothing like wrong with him. But the steep dive, not even in terms of like I would argue quality, but just in terms of like the sort of box office like disaster of it, like the infamy of Last Action Hero. And then, like, Die Hard with a Vengeance kind of buoys immigrant, and I agree that I think that's the best of the Die Hard sequels. But then, like, 13th Warrior, and Basic, and Rollerball, and Medicine Man, even. Like, those are, like, disastrous movies in terms of, like, just, like, the studios, like, it, it helped put him in director jail before he went to regular jail for, like, the weird, like, wiretapping thing. Which is also bizarre, where it's just like, oh, problematic directors like we talked about with, like, Michael Winter. That one's just weird, because it's like, wait, you went to prison for that? For, like, a wiretapping thing? That's insane. Like, that that dude has such a fascinating sort of trajectory there. And even, you mentioned 12 credits. There's only, like, 11 that have been released. There's the the 12th one that's on listed on a lot of sites is the one that's in production. And he's like, apparently, like, I'm going to make my comeback. I'm going to come back with this new movie. And I'm like, I kind of want to see whatever that is. Because, <laughs> like, what's John McTiernan going to do now? <laughs> I mean. Like, I've spent 20 years in, like, prison. <laughs> now I'm out. <laughs> I got to see it. I just hope it's not. No, nah, it's okay. I either want it to be great or suck. Right, but to suck in, like, a big, massive way. Yeah, a huge, right. Like, what the fuck is this? That's, yeah. Right. 
I think that's the thing. Is like this, he's one of those directors for sure, where it's like despite sort of the inconsistency there in the filmography, at least it's still it's just like wide ranging. Where it's just like I'm either going big with a great movie or big with a fucking terrible bomb that should have been in my career. But don't worry, I'm gonna make it like two more huge bombs after that. And I, I stick up for Last Action Hero. I think Last Action Hero is very fascinating, especially in a modern context of like deconstructionist blockbusters. Like especially like I don't think you get Phil Lord and Chris Miller's like stuff on the Lego Movie Twenty One Jump Street without last action here i fucking hate it <laughs> maybe we'll talk about that on this show someday who knows but um let me go ahead and bring up my next person who is another one of the ones that kind of snuck up on me but especially considering like this director hasn't made a lot of movies and i haven't seen all of his like i believe he's only made a total of eight movies that have been like released feature films but i would say four of the six i've seen have been tremendous beautiful great movies i have alfonso Cuaron, um who is another great example of sort of like a foreign filmmaker who i know i haven't seen this first movie that is actually like in spanish i haven't seen that particular one um but like so many of his movies are so fascinating with especially how once again he's another great director who does a lot of like intimacy no matter what the genre is like i love ichimama tambien but the fact that like that guy went from ichimama tambien which is like this great like, very sexy, but also very sad in its own way movie about, like, growing up and finding sort of a sexual awakening and then realizing that, like, oh, maybe, like, we were kind of, like, fucked up kids who didn't know what we were kind of doing to a certain degree, but still wrestling with the fact that, like, some of those feelings still work. Like, it's such a beautiful, intimate character story. And then he makes, like, the best Harry Potter movie right after that with Prisoner of Azkaban. It's so amazingly he's able to go from, like, that and then even swing back to, like, right after that is, like, Children of Men which is such a tremendous movie, and that would be my favorite of his overall movies, which is such a great sort of like dystopian sci-fi movie that has like such a great like feeling of the world. That's a big thing with like all his movies. I love how he evokes setting in all these things, like not just like the intimacy that's going on with the characters, but the scope of the setting, whether it be like the entire world falling apart in Children of Men or like the, the beauty and like mysteriousness of like, you know, Hogwarts and all that other shit in uh, Prisoner of Azkaban, especially after another filmmaker had done two movies before that in that series. Like he does such a great job of really engrossing you in these environments at the same time you're engrossing like the characters. And I think whether it's on like a big massive scale, like with Children of Men, where like those amazing one shots, they're at the same time very focused on character. Like the whole thing with like the car motorcycle chase and Julianne Moore getting shot. Like you're still within the perspective, like the characters in the situation. So you're not distracted by the amazing filmmaking going on. Like even gravity has that as well, where it's just like, Oh my God, like so much technical craft is going on, but I'm just immersed in Sandra Bullock's journey this whole time. And you're just like, so fascinated. But I think that's the big thing he does is he manages to get you full engrossed in the characters so that the world stuff is there and very present and you feel it but it doesn't distract from, like, the story that's so character-focused at the same time. And then the honorable mention is, like, one I actually didn't watch until this week in prep for the show, as sort of, like, a sliding skill of, like, am I going to include him on the list? And I still think works, even though I would say it's my least favorite of the movies he's done, but I still think it's very good, is A Little Princess, which uh, was his first, like, English-language production. And I think it's such a really great uh, kids' movie that at the same time evokes a lot of these, like, sort of intimate sort of close angles where it's like it's about this young girl who is sent off to a boarding school by her father who's like fighting in world war one who goes missing and is presumed dead and then she becomes basically like a a servant to the woman who runs the school 
And there is like such beauty and like the look and lavish design of all this, but you still feel the sadness of this character as she's stuck in like this great opulent sort of like boarding school for girls. But you realize like how trapped she is because she's like, oh, I'm no longer like a young girl. I have to like grow up very fast because I'm forced into a real world that is like so awful to me and shitty. Despite there's some weird like racial implications with that movie. Uh, about sort of because she's like a young British girl who came from India and she tells like a lot of these stories about India they're a bit off I think just based on the original source material uh, and some other elements there but at the same time I think it is like a I get why that was sort of like apparently a big thing for like young girls in the 90s kind of like grew up loving that movie and even just watching it very recently it's like oh it's so cute and immersive and despite some of those questionable elements it still is like very earnest and I respect what it's doing at the same time a tremendous example of like a filmmaker going from, like, his native language to an English production that is still, like, very lavish and beautiful, but still has a lot of that intimacy that he would have in a lot of his other movies to go from there. Yo, Azkaban is the shit, right? Like, <laughs> it, it is the best Harry Potter movie, in my opinion. It has been since I've seen it. But, yeah, I mean, Alfonso Cuaron, I mean, Children of Men alone is a masterpiece. I mean, the beauty of that movie and, and, and its sort of, desolence and destruction i mean it's sad and depressing but it's fucking great um no i i'm a big fan of his um he hasn't done i think he only has like 20 credits total um and but again i'm sure some of short shorts yeah shorts and stuff like that yeah um i'm probably one of the only people on planet earth that has not seen gravity uh because i'm claustrophobic and i'm like nope Nope, 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 not going to do it. Yeah, I, I mean, the things of his that I have seen, I've, I've really liked. Of course, like you said, E2 Mamatami Yen is great, but I even liked um, Paris Yatami. It was pretty decent. Like, he's right, just he's a, one of the he, segments in that, yeah. Yeah, he's just, he's a really, like, sort of, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say underground, but he's one of these guys that you don't see much of, but when he does, it, it, you're almost guaranteed it's gonna if not be great it's gonna be something you're gonna want to talk about like i haven't seen aroma i've heard mixed things on it but i mean it was nominated it, people were talking about it like he's an he exciting, won another best director oscar for that right so, he's an yeah, exciting right. director so yeah i i definitely like alfonso Cuarón. would not have been on my list maybe if we were going like sci-fi movies i would children of men sure probably would have been on there but and so you would have got the mention, but yeah, still, I, I completely get it. He's he's really exciting. Yeah, and even like with Roma, like I have seen that movie, and I didn't love it nearly as much as so many other people did. But there are beautiful shots in that movie. There are so many like great immersive, like beautiful, like the last shot of that movie. It's like a giant one take that's like ten or fifteen minutes. It's like beautiful, and I'm crying at the same time. I didn't love that movie. It still is like so engrossing. And I think that's what you get with a guy like that. And especially, yeah, he's definitely one of those where, like, he takes such big breaks in between projects. Like, I know he's doing, like, an, a TV show now. It's, like, his most recent thing that he's going to do. And I'm like, he hasn't yeah, done that before. Hurt. Yeah, why Curious not? to see what he's doing now, for sure, on that. Oh. But please, your next entry on your list, Adam. All right. So this is the guy I was sort of alluding to as long as the companion piece with uh, McTiernan. This man is never anything but interesting. Uh, he has made some of the most bonkers what-the-fuck movies ever, at least in the modern age. He has made, to me, the greatest film to come out of the 80s, as far even if you want to say just sci-fi or action. But uh, for me, period, I think in its cynicism and everything else, I think it's perfectly an 80s film. 
uh, and still translates today, which is saying a lot, and he's done that a couple times. I have the just wackadoo, fun-loving, wheeling and dealing Paul Verhoeven. I, I just, I fucking love this guy. Everything he's done that I've seen, even if I don't like it, I'm still like, Paul Verhoeven took a swing on this. Everything's done. Showgirls, for God's sakes. That guy took a fucking swing. Did not work, or at least for general audiences. Uh, Hollow Man, same thing. Uh, I mean, the guy has done just batshit crazy things. And he's given us one of the top three Arnold Schwarzenegger movies of all time. He's given us one of the biggest box office bombs that have now become a cult hit of all time. But he also gave us the movie that I would say is my favorite, which I'm sure is no shocker to anybody, RoboCop. I think RoboCop is a perfect 80s film. I think it perfects and furthers the genre of sci-fi action, but also deconstructs it in a really weird, fun way. I think it has a lot to say, both about politics and sort of class. I think it is just a masterpiece uh, from beginning to end. Everything works for me. There is not one thing I would change. Even Paul Verhoeven crazy dancing at the camera, uh, I think is just great. And that's an image that sticks with you. That fucking one image stuck with me forever. And I didn't know it was Paul Verhoeven until, I don't know, 10 years ago. He's just one of these guys that anything that comes out, I'm excited for. Like, Benedetta? What the fuck? Yeah, Benedetta. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ, man. But for my sort of, the one like, it's not underrated. It, it isn't, but it's one of those, like, I think it got misinterpreted at the time. I think it's gained the audience now that understand what he was trying to do, but I don't think it did at the time with Starship Troopers. Uh, I think people looked at Starship Troopers as a sci-fi horror film with some action in it, and they didn't really understand that he's basically doing what he did in Robocop again, but for the 90s now. And uh, I think Starship Troopers is just a boatload of fun, and I think it's got a lot of good points and poignant meaning behind it uh but at the same time only paul verhoeven can get across those sort of messages that he's trying to do while clearly not high school kids are just shooting down giant cockroaches and shit like it's fucking crazy it's crazy but it's great yeah he's definitely another one of those guys like a george miller to where he still is just beholden to his thing he's gonna do what he wants to do and anytime there's a new verhoeven thing i'm like oh i gotta see it and uh, I will continue to be that way until he stops making movies. Yeah, I mean, I love me some Verhoeven. He was definitely an example of, like, I would have definitely put him on my list if I didn't think you were going to put him on there. <laughs> so I didn't. But at the same time, yeah, I, I love Verhoeven. I agree with, like, so much of what you're saying. And I think especially what's so interesting about him is that he definitely feels like a filmmaker where, obviously, he stopped making Hollywood movies, like, around the time of, like, Hollow Man or so. And I think it's because uh, he managed to make, even within the studio system at the, you know, in the 80s and 90s, like, very challenging blockbusters, which is something you don't really get anymore, especially. Just, like, movies that genuinely challenge an audience's expectation and their sort of, like, values. Like, Robocop did that in the 80s, and everyone just kind of, like, loved it and either embraced those, like, elements or just kind of took it on face value (laughs) for, like, being just a badass action movie. And I think that's the kind of fascinating thing. is like, he makes movies for both the smartest and the dumbest person in the room (laughs) to a certain extent. Uh, but at the same time, there's always that challenge that's there. Even in the more recent, like, sort of movies that he's done, like, you mentioned Benedetta, which I fucking love. And it's still just proof that, like, oh, this guy is, like, what, in his 80s? And he's still, like, willing to make a movie that 
incredibly challenging and bizarre and fascinating and kind of exploitative, but in a very interesting, engaging, and meaningful way. And even like the one he did right before that, L, which has many elements to them, just like, I don't know how well this necessarily works, but at least it's like, he's a guy that makes you think at the same time that you're entertained, which is something that we've kind of, I think, lost in a modern sort of like film landscape with a lot of like directors who work regularly. He's one of those guys where it's like, no, I am going to entertain you and then make you challenge. Like, why was I entertained by that? <laughs> is it because of the satirical elements that I'm getting? Or is it because I'm not getting that and this is just fucking fun in a like depraved way that I'm kind of embracing like my inner sort of like animal instinct. There's like so much there and yeah, he's a tremendous director. Love most of his works. And even those that I don't love necessarily are still incredibly fascinating. And you know, we've talked about a couple of his movies, like especially even just as recently as Showgirls. That is distinct. That there is, is a movie. no other movie like Showgirls. <laughs> Absolutely not. And there never will be again. Uh, but I'll go ahead with the next person on my list, who is another filmmaker that is challenging work, so I would argue most of them are not very mainstream to any degree, but he's definitely another one of those where, when I first started watching his work, I was more confused and befuddled by what was going on, but the more I think about them, the more I like really feel them on a weird, deep emotional level, even if I don't understand every single element of what's going on. Um, but I have David Lynch who is one of those guys where, like I said, when I started first started watching, like, Eraserhead and all this other stuff, I was like, I don't know if I really, like, get this. When I was, like, in high school, it's like, I don't know, this is weird to me. I don't know if I can really embrace this. But he's definitely one of those guys that, like, his movies stick with you. And you really embrace, even if you don't know every detail about what's going on, what the symbolism is, at the same time, you're just like, I feel something, like, at my deepest core about this movie. Some feel in like a, I don't like this whatsoever. But for me, it's just sort of like on a primal level, I am so taken aback by what he's doing with any of his movies, whether it be like Eraserhead or even something a bit, some of his more mainstream movies that aren't like as surreal, like The Elephant Man or Straight Story. There's such like a beauty and once again, a real embrace of the characters where it's like, even despite the fact that these stories are very untraditional and odd and don't follow like a familiar structure, there's still so much like beauty and heart and love in what's going on at the same time that they're very like vile and disgusting and shit like the depravity of people. Even like when you transition to TV with Twin Peaks, he managed to do that and briefly get audience attention and fascination, <laughs> even if that they lost kind of that attention after a certain point and then came back with like the Twin Peaks The Return, which is one of I think the best seasons of television that's ever existed. And I love so much. But in terms of his filmography, I would say my favorite of his is still Mahal and Drive. We talked about it on the show, but I love that movie. I'm so engrossed in, like, the weird noir elements that are going at the same time. There's this beautiful kind of, like, tragic romance that's going on between Naomi Watts and Laura Herring. Um, I, I think the both of them are, like, so tremendous in a way that's, like, really engrossing in the romance and then the tragedy of it breaking apart still stands at the same time there are horrible people, like, behind dumpsters and weird people that, like, from Hollywood that, like, come from under the cracks and, like, show up. There's so many bizarre elements there, but I just, like, love so much about that movie. And then, um, in terms of an underrated, there were a couple that were kind of vying for the spot. Like, I really became more a fan of Lost Highway recently after a rewatch, but the one that's, like, my MVP in terms of, like, underrated, just in terms of, like, it's not even that accessible anymore. But I just, like, love how weird and off-kilter it is, but at the same time, it's, like, beautiful and embraces its emotions on its sleeve once again is a Wild at Heart. 
which I think is like one of my favorite Nicolas Cage performances. Dern is amazing in it. Willem Dafoe. Um, and uh, there's, there's just like so much there where it's like this weird road movie that turns into like an upsetting crime movie and a violent gore movie and then it becomes like a Wizard of Oz homage by the end of it and the weird mix of like Elvis music and incredibly intense like uh, metal music at the same time. There's like such... Uh, like, like, there's so much going on there that, like, veers into, like, comedy and melodrama and romance and, like, so many, like, weird, beautiful elements. I think that's the big strength of Lynch is, like, he manages to, like, have these movies that go into all sorts of bizarre directions, yet you believe in the emotional journey of the characters at the same time. I've said this before when we've covered his movies on the show. Despite how sort of, like, weird and, like, untraditional the stories are, they are all emotionally true. You feel something on, like, a true primal level, an emotion that really connects you to any of these people, no matter how weird and bizarre they are. Much like Lynch himself, who, he's another one of those guys where just on a personality level... He's so fucking great. Like, it's so great seeing him in interviews where it's just like, are you watching a movie on your fucking phone? And it's so funny to see. And just shout out, he was in a recent movie that's probably going to get a lot of Oscar nominations from another director I might mention later on this list, and uh, he's amazing in it. But um, we'll put a pin in that for a bit later. I mean, yeah, dude. I mean, he's David Lynch. I'm not as crazy of a David Lynch fan as a lot of people, uh, but everything I've seen of his, love it or hate it, there's nobody else that's doing it like him. I mean, David Lynch is so fucking incredibly unique. Um, I would agree. I think Mulholland Drive is probably my favorite of his, if not Lost Highway. Uh, Lost Highway, I mean, even the, the soundtrack alone is a fucking banger. A lot of David Bowie, a lot of, I mean, it's it's really pretty great. Rammstein. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of th- this first time I heard of Rammstein. Was the yep. Lost Highway soundtrack? Well, some Trent Reznor's on there, like Angelo Benamelanti. Like, there's some good stuff on there. Wild at Heart might be the movie that creeped me out about Bad Teeth. Because yeah. uh, <laughs> Will teeth are fucking horrible. It's terrifying. But yeah, no, David Lynch. He's one of those guys to where, again, much. Yeah, I, I think we're seeing sort of a pattern with with your list. Uh, maybe not a complete pattern, but you have several on there that they're so definitive. They're the influences for the new generation, which is pretty spectacular when you think about it. Like these guys are still working, like a Wes Anderson, like a Sam Raimi, like a you know Lynch. That these guys are still going, still making movies, still doing things, and the new crop of filmmakers that are being celebrated are listing them as sort of like, oh, I was influenced by this guy. This guy, you know, really made me want to make movies, and it's pretty fucking great uh, that at least. We still have that sort of pipeline open to the filmmakers of the past. And uh, Lynch is definitely one of those I would put on that list who is so fucking unique. Love or hate his movies, you got to at least respect that, again, he does them his way. And he's only done it his way and will continue to only do it his way. Very true. But who's the next person who could only do it their way, Adam, on your list? Okay, we're getting into the C's now. My, it's funny, my next three, all, all their last names start with C, um, which I didn't do on purpose. So, probably not going to be a shocker to anybody. It was going to pop up on one of our lists. Uh, I have probably the guys that maybe really appreciate weird comedy and just sort of off-kilter personalities in movies. Uh, I have the Coen brothers. The Coen brothers, to me, like, I, I'll never forget when I first saw the movie Raising Arizona as a kid, I didn't know what the fuck I was watching. Like, I was just like, I know this is funny, 
but everything is so weird. Like, why is this so weird? Because as a kid, you can't process it. Like, why, why are these people acting like this? But it's so funny. Like, I remember literally, there. I, I want to say there's even either pictures or video recording of me laughing till I, I think I pissed myself. And I was like five <laughs> when John Goodman is pulling, pulling William Forsythe out of the mud. And they're ah! the whole time screaming. I, for some reason, it just got me and made me laugh so hard. Uh, it's just, it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And, and they, they've continued to do that to where, oh my God, it's so funny. It's so funny. It's so funny. And then they'll hit you with Miller's Crossing or No Country for Old Men. Or th- and you're like, holy fuck, these guys can get really serious. But yet there's always that tinge of sort of dark humor to it. I've absolutely loved the Coen brothers. I, I, I just think they're so fucking unique. I mean, if anybody can question that, watch Macbeth. What the fuck? The guys who made Big Lebowski did Macbeth? One of the guys who did Big Lebowski. I know, but well, the guy who made Big Lebowski, one of them, made Macbeth. It's fucking crazy. Like, it's crazy that these guys are, I mean, they're so talented. Um, so, I mean, obviously my favorite, I have so many I could choose. I mean, I could, of course, say Big Lebowski. I could say Raising Arizona, but I'm going, oh, brother, where art thou? Um, every time I watch it, again, beginning to end, I love the soundtrack. I think that's one of their funniest, at least of the modern ones. Uh, I, I think George Clooney is his funniest performance. Totoro's kills me. Uh, just everybody in it just really works. And I think it's just so fucking funny. And it's such a Coen Brothers movie. Um, but again, like we were talking about with some of your choices, if you watch a Coen Brothers movie, for the most part, it's a Coen Brothers movie. They have a certain sense of style and sensibility to their stuff that it's just it, it, nobody else could have done it. And then for my uh, underrated, you know, sort of underseen one, it's one we've talked about in the show. Uh, I didn't watch it until we did for the show, and it's become one of my favorites. I have Inside Llewellyn Davis. Again, great fucking movie, beautiful movie, maybe Oscar Isaac's best. Great fucking cameos by a lot of the regulars, like especially like John Goodman. And again, their soundtrack, their score, the, the, those guys know how to put fucking music to movies. Anything that they're involved in, I want to see. I really, really want to see. And uh, I mean, it harkens back to one of your choices, Sam Raimi. They worked on The Evil Dead with him. You know, it's just, they're fucking just, they're masters of modern awkward comedy. And I, I just, I absolutely love them. Another great example of one that I would have definitely put on my list if I didn't figure Adam's going to put that on the list, right? <laughs> Those two are going to end up on Adam's list, so I might as well not. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I completely agree with all that you've said, and especially just the fact that, like, even with the Coen brothers, there's also even distinction within their works. Like, you can tell, oh, this is a Coen brothers comedy versus, oh, this is a Coen brothers drama without, like, even much of any comedic relief whatsoever. Like, just the contrast between, like, you know, Brother Where Art Thou to uh, No Country for Old Men alone. <laughs> It's the dialogue. Yeah, that's the big tell, for sure, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, especially because they write so many of their own movies. But yeah, I, I think, I mean, it's especially ever since, like, and he's, there are another couple people who, like, crossed over with Sam Raimi a lot, because Joel Cohen was initially, like, an editor on The Evil Dead, and you can see, like, kind of their influences kind of, like, meeting toward each other with, like, Blood Simple, 
but even how like that evolved to like Raising Arizona has tinges of Rami, but it still is like so very bizarre in their own right and just their progression forward. They're they're also just fascinating filmmakers. And even just the fact that they've split up, it's a bummer. It's unfortunate. Um, even though it seems like I like Macbeth a lot, but I'm also so curious about Ethan Cohen's new movie. It's gonna be his first one by himself, where it's like it's apparently a Russ Meyer-inspired action sex comedy starring Margaret Qualley and uh, Geraldine Viswathan from uh, uh, Blockers. What is that going to be? I'm very curious. Like, I believe it's him and his wife wrote it. Yeah, <laughs> it's very weird. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm very fascinated to see what what that is, and the same way that I was with like Macbeth. Uh, but I would say, in terms of, like the underrated ones uh, for me, I would say the one I would spotlight so much is Burn After Reading. I think that one, just because right after No Country for Old Men, they put out that, and everyone was like kind of confused by it. But I've, ever, I've been like a diehard defender of that movie ever since it came out. That movie's so fucking funny, and so good, and so massively underrated. I mean, yeah, I can agree with that. Uh, I would say that's Clooney's maybe next best comedic performance. Oh, so fucking funny in that movie. And McDormand, Richard Jenkins, Brad Pitt, everybody's so fucking funny in that movie. Um... But I'll go ahead and go to my next person, who's dabbled in comedy a bit, but is more known uh, for his big, sweeping, sort of, like, initially blockbusters, and then uh, the sort of Oscar Beatty stuff he's done a bit more recently that still is very good, and I'm not trying to dismiss him by saying Oscar Beatty, but someone was going to put him on one of their lists. I kind of said to Adam, like, I kind of want him to be on this list. He's kind of like the most obvious person, but he's not quite number one. You, If I, you had asked me, like, uh, a couple of years ago, I probably would have said number one, but still at the same time, very sort of like beloved to me, and I still think very consistent despite having a fair amount of uh, bad ones in his own right. I have Mr. Steven Spielberg, um, who, I mean, what can be said about Mr. Steven Spielberg, of course, is like so much has been about like the creating the blockbuster with Jaws, or then kind of evolving it into like the Indiana Jones trilogy, and then going into like Jurassic Park and like revolutionizing digital technology, and then going into like his more recent, very upsetting. Uh, sort of like drama focused stuff uh, with like Munich and Saving Private Ryan and you know Lincoln and all these other things that are just like so it's such a fascinating way to see like you can still see so many of his directorial flourishes at the same time like he's another example where like you can the, what we talked about if like oh you can tell it's a Spielberg movie but at the same time what a Spielberg movie has been has kind of evolved over time to where even like with the blockbusters he's done in recent years which some of them have been lesser than others but like a Tintin there are elements of like Indiana Jones but it's like clearly just like no we're gonna take advantage of like the animation in this and we're going to do just like as much stuff that breaks traditional cameras as we could possibly do with it and I mean I would say my favorite of his this, this is an unpopular opinion necessarily but it is Jaws Jaws is obviously like a such a perfectly constructed movie that like revolutionized like so much about blockbuster culture and horror and so many other things but when you watch that movie I just always get swept in about like oh wait no this is a very wonderful like sort of character focused like, action or genre movie that's still at the same time, like, it develops its character so beautifully and through a lot of, like, visual stuff that is still just, like, so engrossing at the same time that it's righteous and fun and so awesome to watch. And then uh, my underrated is a movie we talked about on the show. We kind of did it as a bad pick for Stanley Kubrick, which was a weird sort of, uh, like, facsimile thing, but I'm so glad we got to discuss it because I think this movie has aged, like, a fine wine and I think is still one that, like, deserves a lot more attention of AI artificial intelligence, which is, like, such a fascinating, 
real fulcrum point for his career. Just like it still has like a lot of the big spectacle that he would be known for in like the from the seventies, eighties, and nineties. But it's him really embracing like the sadness element of his career, <laughs> the true sadness that would like really progress forward all the way up until recently, the Fablemans, which is uh, what. I, by the way, was referencing earlier with David Lynch. Uh, he has a cameo in that movie as John Ford at the very end of the movie, and it's tremendous, and it's such a great use of Lynch, and it's such a great thing with Spielberg. But even that movie, or I think if Spielberg had made that movie about, like, his childhood, like, in the 90s, it would be a lot more, like, sweeping movies about movies, kind of like, oh, the magic of cinema movie. But it's an incredibly depressing movie about the fact that, like, yeah, you can love movies, but also... Movies reveal so much about, like, your relationships with people and how it can really, like, tear you and your family apart at the same time you love this thing that you're embracing as, like, a career and a passion. Um, but to get back to AI, I think that movie is a great example of just, like, him taking a lot of the elements he learned from his blockbuster culture and transitioning over into being an incredibly upsetting movie about, like, a child who cannot be with its mother and realizes that, oh, no, my mommy will leave me. And I'm stuck in this cruel world that has no sympathy for me. But I still at the same time want to go back to mommy at this whole time. And I think that that element is like so like fascinating and tragic at the same time that all this big, massive sci-fi stuff is going on with it. It just shows that guy contains multitudes. He's not just the Jurassic Park guy. He is also a man who is able to really take that kind of sweeping element that like you grew up on and you were nostalgic about in like the 80s and 90s and then kind of turn it on its head once he does like very serious dramatic movies that are like still like engrossing and entertaining but also very like sad and upsetting and fill you with a different sense of emotion beyond like oh wow wonder and like amazing this is like oh no i'm also very sad <laughs> i'm so sad about this he's a dude that contains a lot more multitudes than i think people give credit for especially as so many people have tried to rip him off you know, like, a, I'm, I'm sorry if J.J. Abrams is on your list, Adam, but he would not be because of how <laughs> close a notator he is. No, no, no. Uh, I mean, you know, fucking, he's Spielberg, dude. I mean, what, you know, the thing is, even if he was only the Jurassic Park guy, that's enough. Like, or just the Jaws guy, or just the Raiders guy, or just... Or just right, exactly. That's the beautiful thing about Spielberg. He could be just, uh, he did Schindler's List. Holy shit, he did Schindler's List? Like, you know what I mean? Like, this guy... Steven Spielberg is, you know, Christ, I can't say anything bad about the fucking guy. He's he's done some of the greatest movies that have ever been made and continues to pump out quality work. I hate musicals. I was like, West Side Story was dope. Yep. I saw it with him, folks. I saw it. He liked it. <laughs> I liked it. The guy knows how to make a fucking, like, a picture. Uh, he's just, he's <laughs> fucking great. He's one of the old school modern masters still working today. He one million percent would have been on my list uh, until A, you said, I, I think I want to put him on mine. And B, like I said, I tried to steer away as much as I could from the big names. Because uh, there's definitely one that is in my honorable mentions who probably would have been my number two if we were even ranking that. Uh, but no, he's just, he's fucking great, dude. He's Steven Spielberg. You know, Jaws is a fucking masterpiece. And AI. The only reason it was the bad pick for the Kubrick because I didn't know what the fuck else to pick. Uh, I love AI. AI is a masterpiece. Uh, it's just, yeah, no, Steven Spielberg is, he's one of those guys where, you know, oh, favorite directors, well, Steven Spielberg. He's one of the first names mentioned to anyone you talk to. He has universally just united the fucking world in movies. Like, he's the greatest 
spectacle blockbuster director that's ever lived, and that might be giving him a little bit of discredit because none of his all of his movies are spectacle blockbusters. But if, even if that's all he did, he's one of the greatest who ever lived. My favorite Spielberg bit is a stupid Saturday Night Live thing where they're making Laser Cats five. Oh yeah, that's right. That's Lord. What if we got Steven Spielberg? Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. Uh, all right, come on in. Laser cats. And he walks in, pushing the TV on the fucking rack. <laughs> like it's just Spielberg. That's a, the other thing about him. Like a lot of guys talk about, he's not afraid to like make a joke on himself too. Like I just, I fucking love Steven Spielberg. Or, or and, and even like he was so instrumental in getting like an Animaniacs done, and they parody the fuck out of him like all the time where not like, the wackos wacko yakko and doc would just show up in his fucking office just like we want to pitch a movie to you Stephen, <laughs> and stuff like that he, he really embraced that i think he's also another one of those great examples of like director who has like a persona that like people like really love just like oh it's it's uncle steven i've seen so many movies that are like you know where there's actors in the movie and it shows the director and it's it's clearly supposed to be steven spielberg like, where he's got the glasses, he's got the ball cap on, the hair coming out from underneath, the vest. Like, Steven Spielberg is one of those guys, like, oh, just do that. Like, make someone look like that, and everybody would believe it's a director. Right, where you, everyone knows who Steven Spielberg Even, like, your aunt who doesn't watch that many movies, she's like, oh, you're going to be the next Spielberg, little boy, <laughs> or whatever. Like, they, he's so culturally ubiquitous. And he's definitely one of those ones where he's... My list I try to, like, vary up with, like, a bunch of different, like, weird choices, but there are two... Who are very typical of sort of like, oh, like the obvious names that I had to pick. He's one of them. And I'll get to my other one in a bit. But Adam, your next choice. Yeah. All right. My next choice. I know this sounds crazy and I didn't mean to do this, but my top three are actually my top three. Because when I was writing the list, the first three I popped to mind are the three that I wrote down. Two and three could be interchangeable. But uh, number three, I have just, I, I think this guy is a, just a master director uh especially genre films uh but when he's sort of ventured outside of genre films he's also made masterpieces we've talked about him on the show uh he's still going strong he's still fucking cranking him out i have uh canada's own david cronenberg to me cronenberg has just done for the most part i would say 90 percent of his career of the things he's put out have been great uh, not necessarily all masterpieces, but at least great. Uh, you know, there's a couple here and there that I'm not a huge fan of. Like, I'm not crazy about Existence. Uh, I'm not crazy about Rabid. You know, there's there's some that are like, eh, okay. But for the most part, I mean, Cronenberg, Jesus Christ, man. Talk about having a sort of identity as a filmmaker to where you watch a Cronenberg movie. Oh, this is David fucking Cronenberg, especially when it's genre. You know, the body horror and stuff. I'd say he's sort of the master of that. There's so much shit he's done that has just fucked me up in the head and stayed with me in a good way. I mean, The Fly. Jesus Christ. Honestly, one of the top two greatest sci-fi horror remakes of all time. If I mean, interchangeable, maybe with number one, the David Cronenberg's The Fly. It's amazing. And then sort of his resurgence with Viggo Mortensen and the, the movies they did together, and uh, which were all pretty good. I'd say probably the, the weakest was the one, the Sigmund Freud one. Uh, but still, not a terrible film. Uh, it's just, he's, he's fucking great. And the guy is like, whatever, I'll just do weird shit. 
we're going to make this super sexual and super gory. And that's what I want to do. And now like his kids into it and his kids like is making great movies like possessor. What the fuck? But you know, if I got to talk about my favorite Cronenbergs, I mean, like I said, the fly would probably be my favorite genre, but I really, really love Eastern promises. I think that is just a phenomenal sort of crime gangster cop movie coming from David Cronenberg. And it's fucking just maybe Viggo Mortensen's best, maybe Naomi Watts' best, maybe Vincent Cassell's best, like kind of everybody in it. Like, is this their best work? And then when you really get the tinge of the Cronenberg, where you get that uncomfortable, horrifying shower fight, you're like, oh, this is Cronenberg. You're okay. And it's just, but it's so fucking good. And it's just layers upon layers of just deceit and crime and the way it's shot and the way it's acted. It's just, it's um, it's so fucking good. And then uh, for my underrated, just because didn't make a lot of money, people in our circle might talk about it, but a lot of people don't know about it. The weird-ass, bizarre crimes of the future. I know it's a new one, but it's really fucking good. Uh, it's so bizarre and so weird. But again, the cast, like what is Kristen Stewart doing in this movie? But I fucking love it. Like whatever her choices are, they're great. And Cronenberg is like, yeah, let's go for it. Do it. I mean, that's just, you could tell he really indulges his actors and lets them do what they want to do. But he also has a distinct vision. So he sort of guides them into his vision at the same time. And it's just, he's a master. Another one that's like on my honorable mentions only because I knew you would put him on your list. Uh, but yeah, love Cronenberg. Completely agree. I think what's so interesting too is that he's somebody who are like, I've talked so many like uh, people on my list or just like people who like the sort of intimacy and like the character interactions. Cronenberg feels kind of like the opposite where there are like the fly, I would argue is like the, the closest one where there is like kind of like the intimate tragedy to the, like the relationship going on there. But some of these movies are like so cold about the character interactions, but at the same time, they're so fascinating that still doesn't make me less engaged with, like, most of his movies. Some of them, like, A Dangerous Method is the one you were talking about, the Sigmund Freud one that I wasn't as huge on. But uh, at the same time, like, in, at his best, he's still able to, like, capture, like, these characters who won't, don't really have, like, a huge intimacy to them, despite the fact that they can often be having very intimate situations, very sexual situations. But there's still this, like, weird kind of cold sleekness to the degree that even when he stopped making genre films, he was still making weird movies about that kind of thing. Like, I just watched Crash earlier this year, that movie is bizarre. <laughs> and it's like so focused on such a fascinating sort of like sexual intimacy that at the same time is still very detached and weird and feels like almost these characters are like weird alien people <laughs> that aren't quite human, but at the same time there is a weird human fascination to them. There's like so many weird layers to that. But yeah, I think he's been a very consistent, very engrossing filmmaker. And I'm glad, you know, he came back with Crimes of the Future. Keep on pumping them out, crony. Yeah, man, give me more weird shit like that. Let's go. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah, let's fucking go. Um, but yeah, so uh, for my uh, penultimate choice on my list, um, I really wanted to have an animator director on my list. There's always a trouble with animation directors where sometimes it can be very anonymous and they're like multiple directors, so it's kind of hard to pinpoint a specific one. But I kind of just came to the conclusion, especially as, like, I this is somebody who I've, I've watched, like, a couple of his movies when they were, like, originally coming out, like, in the 2000s. 
Um, at least th- when they came out in the 2000s. He made movies before that. But this guy and his like craft, especially for a you know, sort of style of animation that I'm not as hugely familiar with as we talked about on the show previously, but despite my lack of knowledge about overall anime, um, I love the films of Hayao Miyazaki. All the Studio Ghibli movies, I think, are to some degree fascinating that he did. And I think he has like so much, like there's that wonder and joy that's going on there that like would any child could embrace uh, about these movies. But at the same time, there's a lot more like adult themes that are going on under the, the surface of things. And I think he does such an incredible job with mixing so many of those tones and doing it with, you know, despite whatever kind of barrier I could have culturally or with the language, if I'm watching the non-dubbed actual subbed versions of these movies, there's still like a real human experience that's going on with any of these like weird, fantastical movies he makes. There still is like a real human kind of like you know, the curiosity or fascination like my neighbor Totoro is a movie a young kid could enjoy but even me on like the level of like oh this is a movie about these kids kind of like trying to find their own like imagination way in the world as sort of a tragedy is going on in the background and there's so much beauty and heartwarming like elements that at the same time there's a hint of that tragedy there and I love that and especially like, as these movies kind of like deal with even more mature things like Kiki's Delivery Service is like a fun movie about a witch that a kid could enjoy but it's also about trying to like get into the workforce and trying to make a living and work like live on your own and having a lot of those trepidations about it and like the exhaustion <laughs> that comes with like trying to provide for yourself and take care of yourself at the same time there's like so many layers even to that but uh, my favorite of his is spirited away which was the movie that won him his oscar uh for best animated feature and is still a tremendous movie that has like sort of an alice in wonderland kind of vignette style to it in terms of, like the story but there still is another one of those movies that has like a lot more thematic depth to it about like somebody you know who has lost contact with their parents and is trying to you know make their way in terms of like getting this job at like the bathhouse and stuff like that this young girl trying to like kind of make her way in a world that feels like cruel and harsh but at the same time finding beauty in the middle of that with like all the different like the dragon guy and the um the big weird ghost dude who's like one of my favorite sort of like designs in any animated movie is so tremendous um and then in terms of the underrated I feel like most of his movies are, like, very celebrated, especially by those who, like, love anime in general. But the one that I was, like, a rip-roaring adventure that I just loved so much is Porco Rosso, which is another one that's dealing with adult themes about, like, fascism and, you know, being kind of, like, dejected and tossed aside by society, but kind of learning to embrace who you actually are as a person and figure a lot of that out, while at the same time being a movie about, like, a Red Baron dude who fucking flies around and, like, beats the shit out of fascists. Like, fuck yeah, pig man. <laughs> fuck the shit out of those fascists. It's so fun, so enthralling. And at the same time, it's, like, very beautiful and engrossing. All of his movies do that. There's such a tremendous, like, beauty and warmth and heart to them that at the same time, they're, like, really, you know, like, you feel on, like, such an emotional level about, like, kind of, like, growing up and coming of age and that ennui. But also you're just transported to a completely different fucking world and it shows just, like, the power of what animation can do no matter, like, where it's from or anything like that. They can really engross anybody who watches it. Yeah, this dude uh, was definitely uh, on my honorable mentions. I think I've said it before on the show. If I haven't, I've told you. Uh, Spirited Away is my all-time favorite animated film. Um, I absolutely love it. I, it makes me cry. It creeps me out. It, it's just, it's wonderful. I can't wait till my daughter is not a scaredy cat anymore so she can watch it with me. Um, I, I, I think it's genuinely a masterpiece of filmmaking, be it animated or not. You know, everything I've seen out of him, I haven't seen all of his stuff. 
Uh, but everything I have seen has just been wonderful. There's there's not one that'd be like, yeah, it was okay. They've all been great. I have not seen Pocoroso. Sounds fucking great. <laughs> like, I, I want to see some Red Baron beat the shit out of fascists. With a pig face. I didn't really mention that specifically. He has a pig face. He's cursed yeah, with a pig I'm, face. I'm cool with that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, Miyazaki, you know, I struggled with that too. Like, do I put an animated director? But I ran into the problem you were talking about. Like, they're all, it's like several directors, several directors. It, it, it's hard to find a run, at least in mainstream American film animation, where it's been the same guy for some time, unless it's like a Brad Bird. I'm like, yeah, I'm good. But it's just, yeah, Miyazaki, if you're going to pick one, that's the one. Well, what's the next one you're picking as your penultimate choice on your list, Adam? We're getting down to the wire. Uh, my number two, probably the greatest sort of, not necessarily modern, but 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s horror director, at least in my opinion. I think he's given us some of the greatest shit ever. I think there's a certain genre that wouldn't exist without him. Um, I have John Carpenter. A lot of his shit near the end sort of fell off, wasn't of great quality. Uh, you know, Ghosts of Mars, I'm looking at you, The Ward, even Vampires, even though I like parts of Vampires because I've heard James Woods. But Carpenter's always just done cool movies. Whether or not they're great, they're cool. Like, there's an something about them, like, like oh, all right, yeah, I can get with this. Like, it, it's just John Carpenter... The old curmudgeon smoking his cigarettes sometimes gives a shit, sometimes doesn't give a shit, likes to play a guitar, make horrible music videos. Uh, he's just, he's such an icon for me. He, he's, you know, not necessarily responsible for the first horror movie I've ever seen, but he's responsible for some of the greatest I've ever seen. He's, he's sort of responsible for the, you know, me really getting into the genre and appreciating it as an art form other than it's just a scary film. I mean, that could be Halloween. It could be, you know, Prince of Darkness. It could be They Live. I mean, there's so many that are just masterpieces. But of course, I'm going to go with the probably the easiest one to go to, but I, it's for a reason why everybody references it. I mean, The Thing. The thing is a fucking masterpiece, whether it's the claustrophobic setting, the actors, the obviously the practical effects, the story alone. I mean, everything about the thing really works and it's terrifying. It is absolutely to this day still terrifying. The paranoia and the claustrophobic aspect of it are fucking scary. And it's that's why the 2011 one tried to duplicate it. Didn't work because if you're not John Carpenter, if you're not that cast, if you're not Rob Bottin on practical effects, it's not going to work. Uh, John Carpenter is a absolute master, and uh, for the underrated one, it's one that you know I love. I think you really like it. I know a lot of other people who really like it, but when I mention it to other people, maybe who aren't really into genre films or maybe novices or whatever you want to call it, they don't know what it is. Is in the mouth of madness. I think In the Mouth of Madness is one of the greatest Lovecraftian movies that is not directly based on a Lovecraftian thing. And if you've listened to the show before or know me personally, you know I'm really into Lovecraftian type horror. And In the Mouth of Madness is fucking right up there as one of the best. One of Sam Neill's best performances. Actually, he's been in two of the greatest uh, Lovecraftian type films of all time. Possession and In the Mouth of Madness and Event Horizon. 
uh, he's just, it's a great movie. And it just, John Carpenter, being John Carpenter, putting out great shit. Yeah, the Carpenter run from, like, I would say, Assault on Precinct 13 all the way through, I would argue, like, in the mouth of madness, even with, you know, a memoirs of an invisible man kind of being in there at a certain point. But like most of like that run from like the mid seventies through like the mid nineties is like full of mostly just massive fucking great genre bangers. Like so many of them, like, you know, and it's, it's so astounding that like he could, ju- he's another one of those guys where once like, he could just be the Halloween guy. A lot of people know him as the Halloween guy who aren't like big genre fans necessarily. It's just like, Oh yeah, John Carpenter's Halloween, right? I've seen Halloween. But there's, like, so many other, like, great ones that are in there. Like, I, as much as I agree, the thing is amazing. Um, my favorite is still Escape from New York. I love how, like, that one... <sighs> so good. It's so fucking good. And it takes, like, such a varying, like, a weird take on, like, a weird kind of, like, dystopian future movie that's, like, so wonderful. And even when he would occasionally step out of just, like, the genre, you know, the horror genre and stuff with, like, that. Or Starman is, I think, a great underrated movie. That's, like, a tremendous that. little, like sci-fi yeah he directed starman no i know um, he did i didn't even think of that putting that as the underrated that's an actually great choice you know so like a uh, big trouble in little china right yeah another like, <laughs> a very weird movie like starman is like the most like oh mainstream audience could like watch and feel like very embracing of starman as opposed to big trouble in little china is like so weird that's like that's a couple great. years later it's, <laughs> it's great yeah it's great it's a great movie um but yeah even with like some of the lesser movies he would do later there's still at least like in some of them, I would say there's, like, some interesting, bizarre elements. Like, I would say Escape from L.A. or Vampires are very weird bad movies. <laughs> that I'm just like, okay, these are, like, very bizarre choices yeah. I wouldn't make, necessarily. Yeah. But, like, you go with that. Even Ghosts of Mars, I think, has a bit of that. Uh, the Warden, not necessarily, unfortunately. Very anonymous. Uh, but, yeah. And he's another one of those guys with a great, sort of, like, off-camera personality that you see in interviews that's great, which is, like, gets kind of craggy. And he's just like, ah, I don't know. Uh, f- fuck this bullshit, I don't care, I'm gonna smoke weed and play video games. Which I love that too, that, like, he loves video games, which is like the most mainstream shit. Like Sonic, he loves Sonic so much! I know, that's awesome! <laughs> John Carpenter for Sonic 3, the movie. Direct oh John, God. do it. Good lord. Do it, John Carpenter Sonic 3. <laughs> oh, alright. Adam, we gotta get to our number ones here. Yep. It's time. We're going to do our numero uno, number one picks, and uh, I'll start here with mine. Uh, I mentioned earlier Spielberg was one of the guys, which is like a bit more kind of like obvious choice to some degree that like a lot of people would kind of point to as like great director. This guy also is that, but I think just for the fact that like the dude has been making movies since like the, the late 60s, and I would argue has made maybe one bad movie necessarily he's made some movies i like more than others but i don't think this dude has made like a genuinely like terrible film at all in his massive giant career i am talking about mr martin scorsese who i mean it's like he's definitely one of those guys where like pe- when people think about filmmakers they think of martin scorsese and like also like oh it's scorsese the italian guy picks scorsese but at the same time he makes very like obviously a lot of like great sort of like italian american pieces of cinema he also just manages to like make these movies that aren't even as specifically identifiable on that cultural level and just do weird twists and turns like taxi driver isn't specifically like italian american story but it has like such a great sort of immersive vile look at like the seedy underground of like new york city at that 
particular time and really captures like moments. I love like you can see the history of like the late 20th century through the 21st century through Scorsese's movies. And there's such like a tremendous like whether he captures a particular moment in time, whether he's recreating it like with Gangs in New York or he's like really immersing you in it at that specific time that's happening, like with Taxi Driver um, or even, you know, something as left turns like Alice doesn't live here anymore. He's another guy that like really immerses you in an environment. At the same time, he immerses you in, like, the characters and what's going on there. And there's, like, obviously, like, the great soundtrack choices, the amazing, like, elaborate shots, and so many, like, other elements there. But at the same time, like, Scorsese is so phenomenal at really getting you immersed in the idea of, like, oh, like, I'm so swept up in, say, like, the crime world in, like, my favorite movie of his, Shocker, another, like, great, well-celebrated movie, Goodfellas. You're so immersed in the crime and the familial elements of that crime family that are going on, you're, like, really, like, in it, and you're like, oh, my God, I want to, like, live in this world, and you, like, really feel it. And then he just completely tosses the fact that it's like, no, this world will completely chew you up and spit you out if you were to try and be in it. He does such a great job of, like, thinking, like, oh, I want this kind of life, and then realizing, like, nope, you don't want that at all. It's really fucked up and really upsetting. (laughs) And even in, like, the other movies where he kind of has those temptation elements, there's still always that, like, tug and pull of just like, oh, the the rug's pulled out under you. Or even when he's not trying to do that with, like, you know, Taxi Driver, I mentioned, you're, like, bringing out the dead, other things like that, where you're just, like, in the middle of this disturbed character's, like, reality that you would never want to be a part of, you're still just, like, engrossed in, like, I gotta see what this fucker does next. I can't believe what's going on here. This is such a weird, (laughs) bizarre left-right turn that, like, is going on with this character. I gotta follow what's happening. And I think a great example of that, for my underrated, I think just one of the great underrated pieces of, like, especially dark comedy that's ever been made. It's a movie I've talked about on a friend of the show, Ray Telsh's show. I have not seen this. Uh, The King of Comedy is just one of my favorite fucking movies. I think that's such a tremendous example of how to do a comedy that is still at the same time not, like, ha-ha funny. It is, like, so deeply awkward and upsetting and you're just like, oh my god, I don't want to be anywhere near Rupert Popkin, but at the same time, I'm fascinated to see him go on this journey to like try and become this talk show host, even though he's doing it through horrible, upsetting means. You still gotta like follow it. And you can see like he's created so many like big stars, like De Niro, obviously, in his early career, and then uh Leonardo DiCaprio helping him get started off. But like the way he just uses like random people is so like wonderful. That like the the people that he will cast in this movie, they just pop up being even like a scene that makes such a massive impression, like uh, Don Rickles in Casino, or the Action Bronson in The Irishman, shit like that. We're just like, what the fuck are you doing here? But like, he just likes these distinctive faces. That's the thing is like, Scorsese knows how to make really distinctive, either like really immersive character pieces that you're just like, I'm following this guy through this whole movie, or when just a random person shows up, they're really just like iconic in their own weird way. For like, you popped up for a scene, and immediately I just know who you are, and I love whatever your weird idiosyncratic like personality is like even he did that with his mom like in goodfellas one of the best scenes in goodfellas is just all like joe pesci ray liotta and robin you're hanging out at scorsese's mom's place <laughs> and it's like such a fun immediately immersive like oh my god i feel like i'm living in this scene with these people i think it's that long rambling diatribe basically just to say um martin scorsese's a great director hot take love him mom i gotta cut it off it's a sin <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, yeah, dude. Yeah, I mean, if if I like, I purposely didn't include Scorsese on my list. Like I said at the beginning, I was trying to go with the obvious. Uh, he would have definitely been on mine. I mean, he's smart and fucking Scorsese, man. 
he's done some of the greatest films of all time. I mean, yeah, Goodfellas, absolutely agree. Uh, probably my favorite of his. But, you know, and, and just to go back to your, like, oh, of course, the Italian guy picks, you know, uh, Scorsese. Yeah, he did do a lot of mafioso movies, but hey, he won the Oscar for an Irish crime movie. He uh, also did Silence. Last Temptation of Christ. <laughs> yeah, he could do anything. You know, and the thing is about him, too, like, yeah, he's gotten a lot of shit lately about what he said about the MCU movies or whatever. Fuck off. Fuck off. Martin Scorsese has always been open to making a joke about himself. He played a goddamn blowfish. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> sure, <hell> yes. <laughs> yeah. He's Martin Scorsese, man. The guy's a fucking master. He's a master. There's nobody who does a better mafia movie. There's a guy who comes close because, you know, the phone will go taller. But Martin Scorsese is Martin Scorsese. I mean, it's he, he's as synonymous with film as a Spielberg or some of these other guys. It's just, he's Martin Scorsese, man. I, I, I yep. cannot fault you in any way for your number one. And if anybody does, yeah. they can go fuck themselves. Well, I mean, on the other hand, you were right, Adam. He did uh, say that he didn't consider the MCU movie cinema, so he should have just raked over the coals. And he only makes one type of right. movie, and that's a good point. Yep. Yeah, he's right, exactly. such a hack no, fraud. Uh, yeah, his, what a fucking uh, get, get, Go get your shine box and get off your fucking eyebrows. Your bushy-ass eyebrows. <laughs> Oh, you want to preserve classic film? Go fuck yourself like Captain America. Get right, the fuck you out idiot. of here. You idiot. <laughs> oh, well, Adam, you're the last one with a pick. Who's your number one? Who is your top favorite director of all time? Gee, I wonder. Because I haven't proclaimed this on the show several times or to you. Uh, my number one filmmaker of all time is Michael Mann. Uh, I think Michael Mann is uh, in a league of his own. The way he shoots action, the way he shoots dialogue, the way he can like sort of center a frame, the way he got into digital, way you know, before a lot of other mainstream guys and really ran with it. I mean, it was like him, Soderbergh, this other class, but Michael Mann just, fuck, man. Everything I've seen him do, even his weakest ones, <clears throat> Public Enemies in the Keep, there's still something in there in both of them to where you're like, oh, that, that was a cool shot. Like, I got to give it that. Oh, that's a good song choice. Okay. Oh, that's a good fucking character actor to pop up to play this role. I would have never thought of that, but that works. Michael Mann, to me, just anything he's put out has just been electric and exciting. Uh, he He's just my, my guy as far as a filmmaker. He's my guy. Uh, I put him in first, Coach. There's such a level of kinetic like i said kinetic energy to his films that i don't think anybody else has the 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 sort of pov behind the barrel shots in public enemies or miami vice or something like it it almost makes you jump and startle you like you only fuck you almost feel like you're there at the moment and it's it's just great i mean he's gotten the best out of almost anybody he's worked with i'd argue uh you know well, I'll just say it, my favorite film of all time was also my pick for my favorite film is, is Heat. I'd say Al Pacino in a Heat is the best usage of like late 80s, early 90s Pacino that existed until like, you know, he started doing the HBO movies and stuff, which are really good. And the masterpiece Jack and Jill, of course. Oh, uh, of course. Yes, of course. Uh, but until, you know, the best sort of the hoo Al Pacino, he worked so well in that movie. 
Obviously, they cut out the shit where he was a cokehead, which, yeah. But he works Couldn't have so ever well. tell by anything no, he does in that movie. No, nothing. You get shot. Walking your doggy. She's got a great ass. Um, but, you know, but, so you get that moment, but then you get the moment, you know, Pacino and De Niro in the diner, which is still, I know it's been quoted so many times, and of course it has, because it's fucking great. These are two titans of acting just working off each other. You get probably the only time I ever like John Voight is in this movie. But then you get De Niro with his love interest sitting on the hill late at night, you know, and with just the beautiful sort of dusk scape in front of them. And it's just, it works so well. Everything about that movie is perfect. I, I it just, I can't, it's Michael Mann. I love Michael Mann. And then for not necessarily underrated because people who have seen it, love it, but underseen fucking thief. Thief is great. Easily the best James Conn. I mean, of course, James Conn is Sonny Corleone. Great. But James Conn and Thief, amazing. Thief is such a cool, slick movie. Great soundtrack, synth score and parts. It's just, Thief is fucking great. And again, criminally underseen. Yep, this was the one where you told me specifically, like, don't steal Michael Mann. And I I wouldn't steal him from you necessarily, even though he definitely would have been potentially on my list. I, I agree that I think whether it's in the uh, sort of like film age that he started in or the digital age that he kind of helped revolutionize after a certain point. He has such a great, especially tactile sense of like whatever a character is doing like you see in heat there's all the stuff with like val kilmer trying to like you know put the gun together basically which is like apparently very praises being very accurate and it's like yeah i, I mean I, I get it i'm immediately just like immersed in like oh my god this guy's doing this and so i immediately believe in like whatever action's about to take place and he does that with like all of his movies pretty much there's like such an interesting tactile nature to them um i mean i would say in terms of like the underrated, I guess it's not in as much as like when it came out at the time it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars, but it kind of disappeared and it's a bummer because I think this movie is so great and feels a bit different from like his other movies, but still has like a lot of his great uh, sort of like tactile elements, even though it's about journalism. The Insider fucking rules. I fucking love The Insider. That movie is so fucking awesome. So Probably fucking my favorite good. Crow. It's so fucking good. And like another great example, like Al Pacino during that era that you're talking about where he's like very over the top, but he's a lot more tempered in that movie and it's such like a it's a very nuanced performance from him but like christopher Plummer, bruce mcgill such a great fucking movie as well but yeah i would say the only ones i'm not extremely huge on i would say are like mainly the keep um and public enemies like even we had our tit for tat about last of the mohicans which i know you love so much but there still is like a lot i can respect about that movie if i don't love it necessarily shut your goddamn mouth uh <laughs> uh but still um, yeah, man is tremendous, and uh, he is the man, and I can't wait for that fucking, uh, his Ferrari movie to finally get made. I'm very curious what he's gonna do then. <laughs> that James Mangold movie kind of did see. and was like, oh, that was fine. Yeah, we'll see. It's fucking Adam Driver, Adam. He's driving around yeah. his Ferrari. <laughs> I like Adam Driver. Yeah, for sure. But, Adam, we've been talking for a while, so I know we have honorable mentions, but let's go through them quick. <laughs> Because we've been here for a very long time. I think this might be the longest we've ever done just the two of us on a podcast. And I mean, there was a oh, lot no, to talk about. Oh, no, it definitely about. is. Oh, no, it definitely yeah, is. And, for sure. Uh, yeah, I agree. Just rattle them off. Oh, you want me to rattle off first? I was kind of giving you the intonation to Okay, yeah, let's go. First. I'll rattle them off. Okay. <laughs> you ready? I'm going to go fast. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> Pedro Maldivar, Cameron Crowe, Inarito. Guillermo del Toro, 
Darren Aronofsky, George Romero, Wes Craven, Sergio Leone, Robert Eggers, Richard Donner, Joel Schumacher, Frank Darabont, Clint Eastwood, Dario Argento, James Cameron, uh, Jim Jarmusch, Peter Jackson, Quentin Tarantino, Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah, a lot of really good directors in there for sure. <laughs> Trying to go as fast as I could. Yes, yes. Uh, and uh, I'll go ahead and just rattle off my honorable mentions, well, some of which were either on your honorable mentions or on your list in general. Uh, Steven Soderbergh, Guillermo del Toro, Catherine Bigelow, uh, Ryan Johnson, Spike Jones, David Cronenberg, Spike Lee, John Carpenter, The Coens, and somebody who, if I think he did more movies, I, the more, like, I want to see him continue to do movies, even though he's done only three at this point, but Jordan Peele feels like he's prime to take that spot in the near future. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's where I sit with, like, a Robert Eggers. Same way. Like, he's on my mm-hmm. honorable mention, but, I mean, I loved everything that guy's done, so. Yes, for sure. Well, everybody, thank you, patrons, for listening to this supersized Good bonus God. podcast. You know, we're ending the year on a big banger. This is probably going to be, we knew going into this was going to be a very long discussion, but uh, we thank all of you for uh, being patrons and paying your $1 a month. It really helps keep the lights on. You guys are great. We appreciate all your time, your money, and just you being you. Yeah, I appreciate most of your guys' time and most of your guys' money and most of you <laughs> being you. Uh, and we'll- There's at least one or two of you that I don't fucking like. <laughs> Uh, and we also want to say, you know, given this is coming out in December, just a general uh, happy holidays out there to everybody. Yay, everybody. Happy holidays. Uh, whatever you might celebrate, I hope you're with loved ones, and I hope that uh, everything goes well for you the following year. Yes, which we should mention, Adam, uh, you know, in 2023, uh, we're going to be starting off in January with an audio commentary, and we kind of racked our brains about what are we going to do for an audio commentary for January. There's so much we could potentially do, and we decided on something interesting, uh, because there's a Friday the 13th in January. So we're going back all the way, like, since episode 10 of the main feed show, where we talked about the Friday the 13th franchise, uh, we are going to be doing a commentary specifically on the 2009 Friday the 13th remake, which, despite the reputation in general of horror remakes, uh, the both of us are pretty big defenders of that one. I fucking love it, to the point where I would put it above pretty much any of the slasher remakes that have come out, if not above all. I think it's pretty fucking great. And I would say it's like upper echelon of even just Friday the 13th movies in general. There's yeah, only like a I couple agree. I would say I'll prefer. Yeah, honestly. I agree. I agree. For sure. But we'll be talking along with a watching that movie, and we'll try and put that out around the Friday the 13th, obviously just to a bit of synergy, as it <laughs> were, on that. Uh, but until then, uh, we're very tired. We gotta say cut. Cut, everybody. That's a wrap. We gotta end this. Yeah, get the fuck out, dude. Go get your breakfast burrito from fucking the food truck. We're done.